0: All right everybody welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman and this is Atos, your history is secretly just math, speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This episode is the first of four or so, four or so, I think, on Isaac Asimov's wildly, massively influential masterpiece novel, Foundation, which was published in 1951. This is another of these surprise bonus episodes that you did not know was coming because it was commissioned by one of our Patreon supporters. And the idea here is that these episodes are all going to be published right around the time that the uh, Apple TV adaptation of Foundation is hitting the ether, which is a fantastic idea, and I'm really extremely grateful to the supporter who funded this operation. And this book is so important in science fiction, and, and also, I think, a really great artifact of the intellectual history of the 20th century. And because it is so important, I simply could not be trusted to do this by myself. So I have brought in my longtime friend, Jay Deal, to do most of the heavy lifting here. Uh, Jay is a historian of medieval monasticism at Long Island University. Jay, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So the reason that I wanted to do a whole series of episodes on Foundation and then to also do them as a conversation with Jay is that parts of Foundation are full of Medievalisms—the uh, adaptation of aspects of the medieval world and, and reframing them as a science fiction story—it's uh, what a big chunk of this book is. And part one is very much about the fall of the Roman Empire, which is what my scholarly work has been about. And part two is very much about medieval monasticism, which is what Jay's scholarly work is about. And the the whole thing is also just about what history even is. So there's going to be a lot to talk about, and this episode is going to be only about part one. The psychohistorians. Uh, before we get into the particulars of that, though, just a, a bit about Foundation as a novel. Uh, Foundation is what's called a fix-up novel, meaning that it is actually a collection of novellas that Asimov had published separately in the magazine Astounding Science Fiction between 1942 and 1944, when Asimov was working at the Philadelphia Naval Yard during the Second World War. Each of these self-contained stories is about a far future human civilization. They each jump forward in time. Sometimes it's by decades, sometimes it's by literal centuries, and almost always with a new cast of characters. So it is not a story about the characters. Uh, Maybe a better way to put that is that it's not a, a story about the characters, but it's that civilization itself is the main character of the book. It is essentially a story of social, institutional, and cultural change over time. It's a story about history. And so it seems obvious, Jay, right, that we would be drawn to this. And so really, Jay, that's where I want to start our, our conversation by just getting your personal history uh, or, the, or the history of your relationship, I guess, with
1: Foundation. When did you first read this book? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I've gone back sort of into my memory banks, and I can't pin a date on it. Um, It was sometime between seventh grade and freshman year of high school. And that's about as close as I can get it. There was a a kind of fevered summer somewhere in there where I took a break from the copious amounts of fantasy that I had been reading (laughs) and sort of delved into some sci-fi classics. I can't remember why I did this or anything like that, but it was then that I first read the foundation trilogy. I read Ender's Game in that stretch. I read Dune. Um, For some reason, I remember also vividly reading Greg Bear's Forge of God, which is kind of a a lost work from from sci-fi in some ways. And... (sighs) I, I can't remember, but I read all these things sort of simultaneously. Also, the Dragon Riders of Pern series maybe mm-hmm. was kind of involved in that. And it's interesting. I, when I first read it, and that was the only time I've read it until I reread it for this, my reaction to it was not very positive, actually. Um, I, I was intrigued by the world building. I love the clever plot twists and turns and things like that. But I think at this particular moment, I, like you just said, I was reading so many. Character driven sagas um, based on deeply based on kind of the dynamics of interpersonal relationships and stuff like this. That I actually found foundation rather off putting in some ways. Um, I I found it kind of tedious to read. I found. the long, long sections of exposition through uh, dialogue, kind of annoying in some ways. And, I, and at this point also, I really didn't have the intellectual toolkit to sort of appreciate the, the kind of higher concepts that were built into the novel. So I, I didn't, it actually kind of put me off from Asimov in a lot of ways. I didn't read a lot more of him. And at that particular moment, I, I kind of wrote it off um, in comparison, interestingly, to Dune, Which I loved. Um, So it was a very interesting moment for me in in sort of my kind of mm, my kind of personal history with sci fi at the time. Well, I think the comparison with Dune is really
0: apt, right, that uh, each of them is dealing with uh, really kind of the idea of setting some pre modern historical episode into into space. I mean, Dune is a little less kind of one for one than than Asimov is yeah. here, but it's but it's still pretty close, right in terms of of dealing with the the advent of a, a messianic uh, religion and thinking about the the collapse of a uh, or the overthrow perhaps of a of a spacefaring empire and its replacement with a, another type of empire and and so on, right? There's some real historical clear historical analogs that Herbert had in mind the same way that Asimov has here. But Dune is, although Dune actually also, I believe, was published serially. It was it not was. a, it was, but it was not a fix up novel. It was something that where he was writing it as a novel, it was just being published serially, yeah. which is not what Asimov was doing here at all. And so it does have a coherent set of characters. It is the story of Paul Atreides, exactly. right? Yeah. And so, yeah, I think for us, certainly at that age, yeah, we were reading so much fantasy. And I remember, you know, you and I had, uh, I don't know, we, we just read voraciously at that age but we, our overlap of reading was probably only about 10 or 15% of the reading that we were doing. Uh, so maybe only a couple of things on your list were things that I was reading, but I remember you reading Pern like crazy, yeah. which I was not reading because I was so heavy into Dragonlance at that right, point. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I read the, I mean, there was the original kind of um, young adult Pern novels that I probably read in like fourth or fifth grade around the time I was reading Dragonlance. And then there's the the much heftier, more hardcore sci-fi Dragon Riders series, which is a pretty good counterpoint in a lot of ways to Foundation for me as well. I struggled with both, um, but I enjoyed the Dragon Riders of Pern more simply again because this was these were relationship stories, and I may have been very susceptible to that kind of storytelling, especially in that you know terrible stretch of life from seventh grade until tenth grade when you know you <laughs> sort of like hate everyone around you and hate everything around you and are desperate for good interpersonal relationships. So um, fiction, of course, is a good balm for that kind of thing. And foundation is, is not that kind of storytelling. Yeah, and Asimov, I think, especially for a contemporary audience
0: here, and we're you know, almost a quarter of the way through this century now, the 21st century, You know, the, the weakness of his characters, or I'm not even sure I would say weakness of his characters, but there's these are not stories about character melodrama. They're not even really stories about character drama. And that's true for most of what Asimov has written. It's not true of everything, yeah. but it's true of most of what he's written. We are definitely in a mode of storytelling now. The contemporary storytelling, both on page and on screen, is really focused. Focused on character melodrama and character drama, and so I think he doesn't really work super well for a lot of contemporary readers. Though that's part of why I'm very excited to see what Apple TV is going to do with adapting to this. And of course, it should be clear these that we are releasing these episodes after they've come, that has come out. We're recording them, recording these episodes a month before the show has hit the ether. So we don't know yet. Though maybe we'll maybe we'll find a way to revisit that. But I'll be excited to see how they actually uh, try to breathe some life into into these characters.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well,
0: let's shift into talking specifically about part 1 of Foundation, which is called The Psychohistorians. The first part is the the only part of the novel that is original to the novel itself. The other parts had all been published separately already, but Asimov added this part in 1951 to really serve as the glue that connects these other parts all together. And I'm going to give the briefest of all synopses right now for those who haven't read the book or who haven't done so in a while, and then we'll get into some discussion questions. So it is the far, far future, and humanity has spread throughout the galaxy. All of humanity, the entire galaxy, is governed by a single state, uh, aptly named the Galactic Empire. But that empire is about to fall, and humanity is going to be plunged into a 30,000-year-long dark age. Or at least so says Harry Seldon, Psychohistorian. And he's been saying it a lot, and he's been saying it loudly— And the Imperial government puts him on trial for treason, for predicting the fall of the Empire. And that trial is really the plot and and really the bulk of part one here. Selden gets to make a lot of speeches about how he doesn't want the Empire to fall, but the math is clear. The math is definite. The math is certain. The Empire is going to fall in 300 years, no matter what they do. But they can take steps now to shorten the period of the Dark Age before a new galactic Empire can form shorten it from 30,000 years to 1,000 years. All he needs is the ability to continue his secret project, compiling an encyclopedia of all human knowledge and storing physical copies throughout the galaxy. And at the end of the trial, the government agrees not to execute Harry Seldon for treason, and uh, in fact, agrees even to support his project— but he's going to have to do it somewhere else. He can't stay on the capital planet any longer. And so he and his team of 100,000 people are banished to the uninhabited planet Terminus at the edge of the galaxy. But it turns out that this is what Selden wanted all along. He actually manipulated the government into making this decision and into transporting them to Terminus and giving them a, an official status to be doing this project. Uh, it's a project that we will pick up with in part two when we uh, uh, go a few decades into the future. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about, Jane, in a- approaching this, uh, this world here is to talk about the scale of time, because we are told repeatedly that the Galactic Empire has been around for 12 thousand years which is an absurdly long time (laughs) compared to for a uh, single (laughs)
1: empire for a
0: single empire right let alone for even like a civilization or civilization even in general right human civilization has not even been around that long
1: roughly six thousand years or so give or take depending on when you date it exactly but yeah all of human civilization so far is half the length of this one empire
0: Right. And, and no one alive today feels like they are living in the same state or like same set of political institutions or same culture, right, as Correct. we were 6,000 years ago. So this is, uh, you know, on the face of it, this is a pretty outlandish, uh, pretty outlandish idea. And, you know, you said 6,000 years, you know, this is not our discipline. History is actually not really all that concerned with the origin of civilization because no. history is concerned with written artifacts and hey it turns out civilization existed before writing and so uh, and so this is really the work that archaeologists do, but I, I think that we've pushed that back to about ten thousand years ago, to about eight thousand BC, uh, right? Looking at like the first, first bits of civilization, and, and maybe we should actually talk about what do we even mean by civilization? This is a word I think we use most frequently just to mean like cultured and polite, as opposed to savage and barbaric. But that's not really a technical definition of that.
1: No, I, it's interesting. So when I when I start my classes off with my students, I often Um, point out to them that what we call civilization, although we sort of take it for granted now, because we all live within societies that are civilizations in some ways, the vast majority of human history, um, You know, 97 percent of it existed outside of civilization. And and so we do have to view it as kind of a contingent thing that isn't necessary for human society and stuff like this. I usually suggest that I try to have them come up with a definition for it. But usually I wind up with sort of five kind of criteria for what makes a society a civilization. Um, and these can all be debated. These are these are fodder for debate, not a prescriptive <laughs> definition, but things that sort of seem to go along with civilization. So one, often some kind of like diverse surplus economy that goes along with the division of labor and stuff like that, um, usually some kind of social hierarchy. And of course, there's lots of ways to have social hierarchy um, by By birth, by religious status, by class or other things like this, but usually some kind of hierarchy, usually some kind of centralized authority with cities being the normal site for that centralized authority. Writing, Eh, this often gets bantered around as sort of a qualification for civilizations. I'm a little less convinced by that one. But then and I think this is the most difficult one, but perhaps the most crucial one, but some kind of sense of what we would call cultural identity, I guess. The idea that there is a sort of semi-bounded, identifiable group of people that belongs to this civilization, right? That they sort of have an awareness of themselves as belonging to a certain community of some sort. And when you start to sort of play with those five ideas together, yeah, you start to get a pretty good sense, I think, of what a civilization is in some ways. Although again, I, I think there's room for debating all of these as well. I really like these categories here. And I think the writing
0: is the one that is, is most interesting to me. Uh, you know, you- just for listeners, you and I grew up together, but we we actually went to different high schools. There were two high schools in our town. You went to one. I went to the other one. So I don't know if you used the same textbook for world history, uh, which was actually called world studies, uh, not world history, but was essentially, well, actually it was a Western civ class called world studies is what yeah. it was that we had this textbook that had a definition of civilization that, that included in it writing. But I actually think that writing is the thing that really people have been, by people I mean scholars here have been reevaluating as a criteria which is where we have pushed back the date yeah. uh, quite quite a bit is 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 writing necessary or not because I think uh, thinking about writing being necessary is a very you know western chauvinistic set of criteria that that excludes really all sorts of new world Cultures. Yeah, that I think today we would recognize as, in fact, I, I know we would definitely today recognize as civilizations. I mean, big things like Inca and Maya and Aztecs, for example. and I'm Not even thinking about uh, about uh, North America or, or you know north of, of Mesoamerica uh, as as well, where we've we've reevaluated. Scholars have reevaluated a lot of that. Something else that stood out to me in your criteria here, your set of criteria, your five categories here, is. There are still multiple ways in which we use the term civilization, even when we are doing so in a scholarly way and trying to be precise with our definitions. You know, defining your terms is always sort of the first thing you have to do if you're going to have any kind of rigorous conversation about something. But we still go about using civilization as a concept, as a kind of abstraction in one way. But then we'll also use a civilization as a way of referring to really like a culture or maybe a series of culture groups. And so we use the term civilization to mean multiple things, and that can change based on discipline and, and field or just the thing that you're thinking about at that time. And so to my mind, I think that I would go a little more simplistic, actually, even than the categories the criteria that you've got there you know the word itself really just means hey do people live in cities right It's from the the latin yeah. word cuiways which means city and so for me i think it's really just do you have a group of humans who have stopped uh living a, a sort of nomadic pastoral lifestyle for the bulk of the year and have settled and started to build things uh, to build permanent Settlements that are in it that are in use for at least the bulk of the year by some by some people. That's a, probably the broadest definition of civilization that someone might actually work with, I suppose. But uh, it's one I've been thinking about a lot.
1: I think that a lot of those other qualifications um, that I, I gave to to think about sort of what civilization is actually um, are are the kinds of things that tend to appear. Once you get sort of stable settlements, once you get right, stable settlements tend to create the potential for surplus economies, surplus economies create the possibility for social stratification and stuff like this. So I think these are things that that intuitively we all kind of understand go hand in hand. And this is also why it's so hard to think outside of them in some ways um, to, to represent the limits of the idea of civilization and stuff like that, especially now in the modern world where. There are so few sort of human societies that sort of wouldn't meet these qualifications, if any at all.
0: Right. And I think part of our our 20th century, late 19th and, and then into the 20th century ideas about trying to figure out what determines civilization or not. We're also really rooted in a, uh, a chauvinism in favor of civilization. Uh, you yeah. Know, this idea that civilization is obviously a good thing. It is obviously better than not civilization. And so we're trying to figure out, you know, which which group of people figured out how to live right first was a real big part of that project. But I think today uh, we do tend to recognize that actually there's some real downsides to civilization. And I don't just mean like our civilization that that we live in now, but even looking at this, the the agricultural revolution, right? The idea that uh, human groups are going to stop Doing the bulk of their uh, getting the bulk of their material needs served by following migrating animals around and doing hunting and and doing gathering of of uh, of produce, but to actually stop in a single place and build a series of settlements, perhaps in a wide ranging area where there's still maybe some movement around and and so on, and then to eventually even just settle into something that we would recognize as agriculture, right? To us, that seems like that's obviously the way to live. But now we have all sorts of information that shows that actually that move kind of sucked for people. And that in fact, lots of people resisted this. They saw their neighbors doing this and said, we do not want to live that way (laughs) because uh, it's not simply that you've created now a surplus of food and like can have some protection against climate cycles and weather patterns and, and, uh, you know, other sort of natural phenomenon and so on. Farming is actually really freaking hard work compared to like just following some buffalo around and killing them and eating them when you want, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I I actually don't know how current any of these assertions are in terms of scholarship. I know they're highly contested notions, but there is at least this old scholarly idea that with civilization, um, so with agriculture and domesticated animals, for instance, came the advent of like modern-day disease regimes, Mm -hmm. um, that war was kind of a side effect of the creation of stabilized settlements, because when you had a bad harvest, when you had a bad year or something like that, you just go get the stuff from some other stable settlement, which is possible in a world of sedentary settlements, but more difficult in a world of uh, nomadic pastoralists and, and things like this. Again, I don't know how current any of these assertions are, but certainly these are things that you will hear in, 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 in some literature and on some thought pieces about civilization, about kind of the downsides to it.
0: Right, I, this is something that I have actually done a fair bit of reading about in the over the past year or so, and, and entirely to do podcast episodes, not at all to teach courses, uh, because I, I did uh, an episode uh, on of this show of Atas on the Time Machine, which is oh. very much right about about what is civilization and uh, what do, what do we mean by it, uh, and and it's really a, a social what Wells is interested in there is social Darwinism, this question of 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 are our societies created out of a a, a time type of competition that is uh, that can be best described as the survival of the fittest or not and there's been a ton of of anthropological work on that, and right now the idea, uh, the dominant idea, is that uh social Darwinism is a real terrible uh, idea. Not just that like it's a bad plan, don't do it, but like that it's actually a bad understanding of yeah. uh, of uh, of the prehistoric humans. Where actually cooperation and egalitarianism seem to have been what characterized their their social bonds, and that it's it's competition and social stratification don't show up at all really until you actually get agriculture, and and that that's actually what creates haves and have. Knots and workers and rulers and and so on and so all of these things that we think of this like like types of competition uh and and othering and so on that we often think of as being innate to human nature are actually innate to civilization and not maybe to human nature at all yeah absolutely but uh, that wheel will probably turn and possibly in our own lifetime that scholarly wheel we'll see Well, let's also talk about the other use of this uh, or the other way to use the word civilization to refer to like a specific, uh, I guess, culture or maybe like set of institutions. I mean, I mean, intentionally wishy-washy here because I want to know what you think. How do we measure that when we say like Roman
1: civilization or medieval civilization or something? What do we mean by that? It's so funny that you can't come up with a synonym for it, right? (laughs) That's right. Uh, No, because it tells us how difficult it is to pin down what we really mean once we start talking about Discrete groups, as opposed to civilization as a generic historical phenomenon that arose at some point. Once we start to use it to talk about kind of, okay, this discrete civilization, what do we really mean by it? I noticed this last semester when I was teaching that I don't say Roman civilization anymore. I weirdly, and I don't know why I've started doing this, I use the term the Roman world you know, I've gone even broader in some ways as a way of talking about this. And like intuitively we understand that there's a period in history in which this thing called the Roman world or Roman civilization or Rome um, dominated the Mediterranean and stuff like this. But thinking about what we mean by that is extremely difficult. Is it a shared set of cultural values? Well, Maybe. And yet, if you parse out all the parts of the Roman world, are you really going to find that much cultural homogeneity? I mean, definitely not. Is it authority? All right. Maybe we're on to something here. Areas that are controlled by one kind of centralized authority. I think that's very much um, Asimov's idea um, in foundation that this galactic empire civilization is defined um, by the fact that it is all under the centralized control of Trantor and and of the emperor and stuff like this, that that's kind of its defining feature. But I don't know. I'm curious what you think on these lines. Right. Well, the, the, the thing that we're kind of dancing around, of course, is
0: that that what we're really talking about here is the history of our own discipline, the history of of history, because the definitions or the ideas that you and I here in the the first quarter of the twenty first century have are not the ideas that that people had a hundred years ago or seventy five yeah. years ago when this this book was uh, these stories were written, and I would certainly I would say in the nineteenth century, late nineteenth century, up through you know the early parts of the Cold War. Definitely, we had this kind of top down way of looking at this and that it was all about political institutions. And yeah. in fact, thinking back actually to that uh, world history textbook that that I had in high school, that definitely measured the beginning and end of a civilization uh, by m- measuring the beginning and end of a particular set of political institutions. And so yeah. even just thinking about the ancient world, the ancient Mediterranean world, you, you do Greece and then you do Rome, right? And they don't happen at the same time, even though actually they do, right? They do, but you, yeah. you do Greece and then you stop doing Greece when Roman armies, the, the Roman Republic conquers Greek city-states. And now suddenly you just forget the greek speaking people ever existed or could can or continue to exist yeah. and you now you're doing rome and then you stop doing rome when there's no more empire and then you do the middle ages and i remember That class, freshman year of high school's world studies class, vividly in thinking about the end of the Roman Empire, which we're going to transition to talking about here in a minute or two, and how we actually measure that. That's actually what we're going to talk about in a minute or two. And that being like the big thing that we needed to solve for our unit uh, about Roman civilization was just when does it end and how do we measure Measure that, but yeah. the the assumption was that all we were trying to figure out was when did the Roman Empire end? Because the implication, right, what was understood was that that political uh, inst- set of institutions ending was how we measured the end of Roman civilization. But that's not really what his- how historians do this now. I think we're actually, you know, certainly now more prone to be measuring culture.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it, it's interesting. I can't remember who posed this question to me. I I think it must have been in college at some point. Um, But the question was something like, why do we talk about the fall of Roman civilization, but we don't talk about the fall of Greek civilization? And partially, the answer, I think, is that Rome... Roman civilization, whatever we want to call it, was a nominally a politically unified entity, whereas the Greek world politically was fragmented into all these different city states. And then successively, the Hellenistic world was fragmented into all these Hellenistic kingdoms and things like this. And so as they begin to kind of slip out of existence, whatever, you know, whatever process we think caused that as well, somehow it doesn't have, and, and I think this is a big part of it, the kind of drama or the kind of pathos that the idea of the end of the Roman Empire comes with it because it was this grand, giant, politically unified entity or something like this. And because it has that kind of quality, somehow it's it's susceptible to us talking about its end in a way that maybe other civilization, right? Nobody, people use the term Greek civilization all the time. And yet we don't obsess over its end in the way we do with Rome in some ways of course what we're talking about when we're talking about greek civilization are a set of cultural markers
0: right, uh, right. language uh, literature art forms material culture right i mean like yeah. do you have pottery like a sp- this specific type of of pottery do you have you know cool columns right yeah. i mean that's that's what we're that's what we're looking at and we do Stop, at least, you know, old school way that I had in my high school textbook. Uh, we do stop talking about Greek civilization, though, when it stops being politically independent, even though actually yeah. all of that cultural stuff, all of those cultural markers are still there and, and actually aren't all that dissimilar, especially the material culture from what people are doing in in Italy. I mean, half of Italy is actually Greek speaking. Yeah, yeah at exactly. This, at yeah. this point, right, and is actually part of 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 Greece called you know Big Greece or Greater Greece, Magna Graecia, in, in Latin. If we want to want to want to do that, but yeah, we have this sense, especially with Rome, to do it politically. Though, but not only Rome, but yeah, I think you know culture and maybe and material culture are, are real interesting ways of measuring civilization, but. Even you know something I left out there in my list of like what are the elements of Greek culture that we we use. Uh, something I left out there was religion. But yeah. certainly, as a medievalist, right, one of the hallmarks of medieval civilization is
1: religion, right? By by older scholarship considered to be its hallmark, right? You, you're not hard pressed to find people who use the term Christendom interchangeably right. with the Middle Ages. Right. But what's interesting about that, of course, well, lots of things interesting about that. But one of the things
0: we should say, of course, right, is Christianity exists before the Middle Ages. It exists after the Middle Ages. So obviously that can't be the only thing, but it is often taken to be the single most important element of medieval civilization. But all of this, I guess, points to sort of a broader question, which is really what changes actually need to take place in a society before we say that one civilization has ended and a new one has emerged. And I guess really just in in, in tying this back to foundation is 12,000 years is a really long time for something to be considered like a single civilization in this sense. So do you... Is it possible, actually? Like, like, let's just take for granted that, yep, the political institutions have existed for 12,000 years. You know, perhaps there's been some, I mean, they're almost certainly, in fact, we know there have been some changes in how those institutions work, new ones come up, uh, other ones go down. But for the most part, there's been the central idea of there's an emperor, and that that's been the central political institution. And that's how we're saying this is a 12,000-year-old space empire. Do we take for granted, given that Asimov tells us nothing at all about this, do we take for granted, though, that everyone in the Galactic Empire is speaking the same language, uh, in both in space and in time, or practicing the same religion? What was, I guess, really, yeah, what other changes can take
1: place within a civilization, but yet we can still call it a civilization? It's a great question. I'm, I'm eager to hear your thoughts on it. I, I pose this interesting thought um, as a way of getting to these questions in some ways, that although foundation is, is deeply rooted in sort of real historical concepts in some ways, if we step back and think for just a moment about the ludicrousness... <laughs> of Seldon's realization here. No, but but I mean this. So we have a 12,000-year-old empire that spans, what is it, thousands of worlds? I can't remember those. Uh, millions the, of worlds. Millions like of 25 worlds. 25 million worlds, yeah. And according to Seldon, this empire is going to fall within 150 years. So somehow... In his mind, in his calculations, 12,000 years of inertia is going to be undone in 150 years, but he's the only one who can see the signs of it at this point. Right. Um, And and it's a remarkable claim about um, the sort of suddenness of historical change, um, which is hard for me to wrap my head around. As as a historian, my first instinct, for whatever reason, I – should explore this more, has always been to look for continuity. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm a historian who favors kind of explanations that look for um, how underlying continuities kind of condition the types of changes we experience. And so to think about this, like, if you're going to take this kind of radical change approach, whereby a 12,000-year-old empire can be so suddenly undone in just 150 years that no one sees it coming. The emperor doesn't see it coming. None of the citizens see it coming. There's only one guy who sees it's coming. I think you have to, you have to have an idea that there's one defining feature about the empire. There's one thing that will cease to be that will sort of undo everything. Even if, even if that one thing sort of has a domino effect on everything else, this kind of, this kind of theory of change really has to have a defining Feature, And for Asimov, I mean, it's a little vague and we'll talk about this when we, I think when we get to talking about what his definition of the dark ages is, hmm. but he seems to have some kind of nebulous idea of an orderly society imposed by some kind of central authority or something like this. Like he really talks about social fabric decaying, um, about sort of shared knowledge being lost and so forth. And so for, order is perhaps the wrong word. I said order a moment ago. But what I really mean, I suppose, is enough of a shared identity that everybody kind of has a consensus as to how society is supposed to run or something like that. And as a result, you know, I don't know if this is a good way to talk about this, but one way to think about The end of a civilization is to think about the end of cultural consensus or something like that.
0: Right, one way of measuring this is simply to, to see whether or not the people that we are studying, whether that's, you know, as historians or people reading a science fiction book, is to see whether or not the people who live in this place or these series of places identify themselves as all being part of uh, the same thing, whether they're calling that a culture group or a civilization or a you know some kind of state in this case an empire or you know all of those things or yeah. some few of those things but not all of them, right? To to look and see what the actual people you know, under the microscope actually have to say about this, to use their own criteria uh, rather than to impose uh, some kind of external criteria that we as scholars have come up with. Though, you know, that's also what we do as scholars is come up with external criteria
1: and impose that on the world in order yeah. to, to study it, right? We do have to have both of those approaches. But one of the interesting things about foundation, and, and this, this kind of gets to the point, is that as far as I can tell in the book, there is no term for someone who belongs to the galactic empire right in the beginning when gal is sort of showing up he he claims oh i have a right to the an audience with the empire emperor because i'm a citizen but there's no term like roman right right yeah there's no, he doesn't call himself a galactican exactly there's nothing there's nothing like that there's no term like that and then later on and you know this is spoilers for the second part we shouldn't get into this too much we do discover That there are kind of ethnic labels by planet that begin to show up, um, especially in sort of part four and stuff like this. But they're not really mentioned so much um, in part one or anything like that. And so there's really no indication in this galactic empire that people share anything other than citizenship to it. No, No extensive point is made of that in any way. Right, part four, which I, I haven't thought about
0: for this episode, though I, I did read the whole novel recently. I mean, and you did as well. I, you know, is several centuries removed from the 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 fall here, from the fall yeah. of the Galactic Empire, and so you know, the idea there, I think, is that the the that it's after the fall of empire, then these ethnic identities or exactly. you know, cultural identities uh, start to become more important. Because I think one thing that we can see here in Foundation, in the, or sorry, in this this first part, the psychohistorians is that our, our point of view character who's a a very minor person but he is coming from some he's coming to the capital from someplace far away he kind of regards himself actually as being kind of a hick and now is coming to the capital but he has no trouble communicating with anybody, right? They all speak yeah. the same language, like as colloquially as possible. Yeah. Even, no one comments even on his accent or like there's no, you know, even regional dialect or anything like that happening. And so, you know, in some ways, it, you know, it seems like a vision of
1: the United States, you know, it more does. than a vision of Rome. Yeah. I mean, it, it, at this point in this part one, right, there's no sense of like a pluralistic society. Or anything like that, right? I mean, you're, you're exactly right. He shows up and, okay, he's never seen the Capitol. He doesn't understand, uh, you know, what what he's looking at. Why, why did this elevator go up so far? And yet I'm so close to the sur- surface of the earth, right? He's taken aback by the central hub of civilization. But you're right. He has no problem navigating it. Um, he recognizes the customs of everybody there. Um, he has no linguistic difficulties or anything like that. Um, and so there is, you know, the sense here, um, especially thinking in terms of metaphors around Asimov's time, is this idea of kind of a, a really shared form of, I guess we can call it culture, that everybody not only participates in, but sort of is able to participate in, right? It's it's there. It's been overwritten through the entire galactic empire or something. And I do think that for Asimov, it's very much For him, when this ceases to be true, um, when Anacreon and all these other kingdoms begin to break away um, and no longer see the point of being part of this shared entity that marks the end of his galactic empire civilization or, or, or whatever we want to call it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that is clearly the marker that, that, that Asimov is, is using here. We, we've kind of been dancing around something that I had on the outline as, as a discrete topic, but it turns out that the more we're talking about it, the less discrete it actually is from the, the entry point that we had here in thinking about what defines or what, what set of characteristics make up calling something a civilization or not, that we should really just move into talking about Rome. About, and specifically yeah. about the Roman Empire, because hey, the Galactic Empire is the Roman Empire in space. It's the space Indeed. Roman Empire. And uh, before we talk about that, from a, a you know a, a, our perspective as academics as scholars, I, I want to actually just run through what we get here in the text to kind of prove you know my assertion here that hey, the Galactic Empire is the Roman Empire in space. Indeed. And so one of the parallels that we have is simply that we are dealing with an inconceivably massive state that is too big to really govern insufficient uh, Empire is actually the uh, the term that Asimov uses here in the the text but still has this uh, this very large uh, bureaucracy so that's one of the the hallmarks uh, or one of the parallels that we have uh, there is an emperor and that Emperor is the final appellate authority uh, meaning he's the last person who can make a ruling on your court case whatever that might be uh, that that's one of the Functions of the emperor, but it is actually impossible, really, to get your case to the emperor in practice. That's something that's often
1: held up as being a hallmark of uh, the Roman Empire, especially the late Roman Empire. Another point of parallel, just to hammer home the point, it's revealed after Selden's trial when they're doing the the kind of settlement with the judicial officials or the lords, the barons, as they're referred to. We learn in an almost offhand way that the emperor at this point is actually a child.
0: Right. And that all real
1: power <laughs> resides with this Chen figure who's been running the trial and so forth, which, you know, just if we needed more evidence is hammering home this idea of the late Roman Empire. And I assume is a parallel to, to Romulus Augustulus, the, the putative last Western Roman Empire, who emperor who was a child.
0: Right. Well, and the the entire, I mean, not the entire, but most of the fifth century, both the east and and western halves of the Roman Empire are ruled by by children uh, and therefore not ruled by them, right? Ruled by other people, which is absolutely the parallel that we have here. Uh, Another big parallel that we have here are grain shipments, especially a, a, a grain dole. Basically, Trantor, which is the, the capital planet here. We also might call it Coruscant. It is, it is essentially, I mean, the same definitely idea. same idea and completely the inspiration for uh, the, 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 the seat of that other galactic empire from Star Wars. But the, the planet Trantor requires daily supply from 20 agricultural worlds, right? So every day, they get the complete agricultural uh, hall of 20 planets has to get sent to Trantor in order to feed the the people there. And then we're also told that protecting Trantor and then protecting this supply line becomes the primary imperial policy. That is a direct parallel to the Roman Annona system, which is to say that uh, really for, for much of the Roman period, whether it's the Republic or the Empire or the late Empire, The city of Rome had to be fed by bringing, in particular grain, but actually in the late Roman Empire, all sorts of other foodstuffs as well into the city from other parts of the empire, uh, specifically from Egypt, uh, from what today would be Tunisia and Algeria, what the Romans would have just called Africa, uh, and then also from Sicily. And that this is a really big part of Roman imperial policy is managing that system and and protecting that system as as well. And, you know, at its height, there are literally hundreds of thousands of human beings who are dependent on that supply uh, from... Egypt from Africa from Sicily for at least some part of their their daily sustenance. And so that's a real like screaming red alert there to that Asimov is trying to make sure we know he's talking about Rome here, that this is the Roman Empire in space. But then the other thing really the the, the sort of nail in the coffin here of of making this identification is simply that that the plot of this whole book is that the empire is going to fall and civilization is going to collapse into a dark age and that then there's going to be another empire galactic empire uh, that's going to take its place after a thousand years right which is to say there's going to be a middle ages in space which means that yes at this point we are talking about the roman empire
1: undoubtedly i mean the, the i mean the, the term decline and fall is even used in in the narrative of the text selden talks about the decline and fall of the empire um, which is you know, obviously the the title of Gibbon's famous work on the right. end of the Roman Empire. Um, so, I, I don't think there is any attempt to be subtle with these parallels. No. <laughs> in, in fact, it's an imaginative attempt to map in a in a very one to one sort of way the Roman the late Roman Empire into a galactic empire. Um, and you know, the, I, I think there is this old idea that you know any fallen empire in any fictional work of the 20th century is somehow echoing the roman empire so uh-huh. right the the valyrian empire that all right that was probably the roman empire in, in game of thrones <laughs> numenor i mean what well numenor is really atlantis i suppose but but um, still rome still rome but still rome but in a lot of cases in a lot of fiction these are evocative parallels and in foundation, it's beyond that. It's really hammering you over the head with it. It, It's not like we're trying to evoke the idea of the fall of Rome. It's that we're trying to reconstruct it in space in very clear terms.
0: Right, I I presented that as if we had to prove our case, but we really didn't. I mean, Asimov is this is not like some secret that we've just unlocked. Asimov is screaming this, he is shouting this because he, you know, you need as the reader, right, from his perspective, from Asimov needs you as the reader to get that He's making that parallel Correct. so that you can think about what the, about what he's about to tell us in all these other stories. And of course, this has the real benefit, right? That the Psycho Historians was written after he had written all the, the the other four parts of this book. And so he really he he has now thought about what it is that he wants to to call our attention to as readers. Yeah. It's, it's like writing the introduction of your book last, right? <laughs> which is yeah. which is what you should do. And that's what, that what he's to done. Do. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, let's let's talk about how he is setting up here. At the fall of the, the the Roman Empire in space here and we'll, we'll we'll talk about the fall of the galactic empire but we're also going to think about Asimov's understanding of the fall of Rome, and then also how scholars understand the fall of Rome now, which has been my area of, of scholarly expertise. And, you know, you just brought up, Jay, also the decline and fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon. Uh, that's an 18th century work. It's a, a narrative history written in the Enlightenment, in which Gibbon himself is actually really also taking a look at the empire he lives in, the, the British Empire. But Asimov actually was reading that book while he was uh, in Philadelphia, working at the Naval Hard uh, to um, contribute to the, the the war effort. I also read The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire while I was in the military. <laughs> in oh. fact, um, read a like I would keep a copy of it with me. I would read it on on little breaks. I'd go outside for ten minutes and uh, uh, just read a few pages and so on. And then when I got out of the army and went to college, this is what I wanted to do. Um, so you know, and also I should say, we, you know, we led at the top of the show with when you read Foundation, but I didn't say when I did, but it was my first semester of college after having just finished reading The Decline and Fall of the Ah, Roman Empire and gotten out of the army. You
1: had better context for it when you read it than
0: I did. I did. But let's, uh, so let's talk about some of the parallels here. I mean, maybe let's actually start by looking at some text. So I'm just going to read a a, a little bit of of, of the text here from the the psychohistorians. We should say, by the way, that we are using the Everyman's Library uh, edition of the Foundation trilogy. So this bit of text that I'm going to read comes on page 28 of that. If you want to follow along, you know, don't do that if you're driving, but you know, if you're at home, got a copy, you can follow along here. So here's the passage. And this is Harry Seldon speaking at his trial. The fall of empire gentlemen is a massive thing, however, and not easily fought. It is dictated by a rising bureaucracy, a receding initiative, a freezing of caste, a damning of curiosity, a hundred other factors. And so here is a list of he says there's 100 other factors, but he's, you know, here given us four (laughs) that we can we can talk about uh, about these factors and what they mean. And I think let's just go through them in this order. So here's Asimov saying that perhaps, presumably, the most important factor that's going to contribute to the fall of the Galactic Empire is a rising bureaucracy. Uh, What do you think about that?
1: what he means by this i assume is the 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 unwieldy growth of the administrative state required to sort of govern this massively large empire something like this and the gradual transference of power power or control into a bureaucratic class that becomes Incapable of action, right? This is a, a common trope that as power resides into the slips into a administrative apparatus or something, it becomes impossible to respond to crises effectively because... Bureaucratic structures tend to reproduce themselves because they're run by a million small parts. Changing the trajectory of them becomes very difficult. And this is something often associated, I think, with with large empires and with the Roman Empire, that the administration became unwieldy, that the bureaucracy became overwhelming or something. But you're the expert on this subject. Right. This is something that definitely happens in
0: the late Roman Empire. And we, we have said late Roman Empire many times now, and we haven't really actually like established what we it's mean true. by that, set any dates. So let, let's say some dates here. So when we're talking about Roman, let's just say Roman civilization, we're usually here talking about from, let's just say roughly 500 BC to 500 AD. So a thousand year period, that's a long freaking time, uh, in which actually what is stable there is... Language... Uh, And literature, it's barely about the old and and material culture. Those are the things that are stable. Uh, Political institutions are actually not stable. We go through, in fact, what I would say are three iterations of political institutions. There's the Roman Republic, which, you know, that's uh, falls with the assassination of Julius Caesar, followed by civil wars. You know, I don't know. Shakespeare has made us all remember that at the very least. Uh, And then we get uh, the Roman Empire that is probably the Roman Empire that people are familiar with from like. You know Hollywood. I don't know if you've seen Gladiator. If you've seen any version of Ben Hur, that's the Roman Empire proper. Uh, that often historians will will call the Principate as well. But then we have the late Roman Empire, uh, which we measure certainly we say is the fourth and the fifth century. But often we will say the. The third century as as well. And in fact, the movie Gladiator actually is taking place exactly when Edward Gibbon begins his book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire uh, with the reign of Commodus. Right. That's that's where he says this is when it all went bad. And so some scholars will say, yep, that's the end of the Principate or the Roman Empire. And after that, we're in the later Roman Empire. One of the things that does definitely happen in the later Roman Empire is that there is a rising bureaucracy, and part of why this happens is that the the Roman Empire, as it's constructed at the end of the Roman Republic, when the Republican institutions fail, there's a series of civil wars. I mean, that that occurs over decades. In fact, I think most scholars would say that the fall of the Roman Republic is something that takes of an entire century to work itself out until we come up with this new set of political institutions. Under the Emperor Augustus, but those institutions are actually really all ad hoc. And Augustus and his successors for two centuries run the empire through their own private household, which is to say that the bureaucrats running things like you know tax collection or you know things that we would think of as being like ministries or, or um, cabinet positions, or in, in the modern world are actually all run really by the emperor's household slaves and are run. In his capacity as a private citizen, not really as uh, as, as a governor, um, as a public figure. But that changes in the later Roman Empire. There's a professionalization of a bureaucracy. Uh, the systems are are created more formally. They're rendered permanent, and they are staffed by free citizens from something that we would maybe recognize as as akin to like an upper middle class, an educated upper middle class. And so, no longer is it run by a thousand household slaves. It is now run Run by thirty thousand people who went to college, essentially Uh, upper middle class people who went to college. That is definitely something that happens in the later Roman Empire, and so you could say, well, that's the thing that made the later Roman Empire weak and made it fall. And if you are Isaac Asimov, if you are someone who is living (laughs) and writing these stories at the end of FDR's presidency. After FDR has just spent yeah. 15 years ushering in the New Deal, which has multiplied and entrenched the bureaucracy, you and you're thinking now about the fate of the United States, uh, what's going to happen? We're here in the middle of the Second World War, and of course, now he's writing this part of the book, um, you know, really as you know, so sort of decade after Pearl Harbor or close to it, and looking back and thinking, wow, we, we actually now, the United States is now actually the global superpower, is the new empire in town is this is our rising bureaucracy going to be the end of
1: us? It's funny here, just to, to mention one of the things that's always striking about, um, novels like this sci-fi novels like this is the kind of triple temporality behind them. It's the Roman empire moved into some far future empire in space to talk about the 20th century. There are three different <laughs> sort of time frames taking place all at the same time here. Um, which is a a fascinating framework for thinking about history and its effects. Well, yeah, it really is. And I think that's, I mean, that is what makes
0: doing this so exciting is seeing how Asimov is looking to the past to understand his present and then wanting to communicate his ideas about that to other people. And so putting them in this like this fictional future setting in order to do that. I mean, it's a brilliant move. It's so much fun. I mean, you know, we're getting so much, uh, I'm getting so much joy out of having this conversation with you and going through it this way. Let's, let's actually skip over receding initiative, Right mm. now, and go to the third one—a freezing of caste—simply because that seems maybe to be most related to, or uh, most akin to, the rising bureaucracy. Uh, what, what do you think he even means
1: by the term caste here? I, I was really struck by this when I came across it uh, in the book, and I'm a, it, its a—it's a puzzling use of this word, which I, I think to fully understand we would have to dig into sort of how this term was used in society in the 1950s, um, in, in North America, what I think he means, what I assume he means is the elimination of social mobility, but that's not really something we associate with caste, I, I suppose, right? Is he talking just about class here when he uses the term caste? um, that sort of people no longer have the ability to be socially upwardly mobile. Um, or does he mean something else? Um, I, I, I I'm very puzzled by the the sudden eruption of this word caste, which I don't think of as a term that I associate with either Roman history or with 20th century U.S. history as a way of talking about the structure of society. Absolutely. Completely agree. That's why this is such a confusing term. I mean, usually this means something
0: akin to class, like you have a station in life. And what we mean by using caste instead of class, though, I think is simply that it is permanent, that there's absolutely nothing you can do to get out of that group, which is the exact opposite of you know of 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 social mobility. Social mobility meaning, yeah, sure you might be born into a particular set of circumstances and a particular set of identities, but that you can change those things through, you know, some process.
1: And yet, if that's what he means by caste, then the term freezing of caste is, is nonsensical. Unnecessary. Right. Yeah. Because right?
0: they are frozen. <laughs> yeah. I, I yeah. think
1: he might be. I mean, th- there are various references throughout the text to lordships and stuff like that. I think he might um, be trying to talk about aristocratic classes as if there's some birthright mm. or something mm. like yes, that yes. to certain social statuses, but also because he wants this to be a commentary on the 20th century suggesting that there is the ability to move through these these aristocratic classes somehow
0: right yeah so let's uh, let's ground this back into the late roman empire and in particular maybe to think about you know what gibbon has to say on, on this which i did not review yeah. so this is going to be from my memory of having read this uh, 25 years ago uh, but you know we'll we'll see what we can do here so there are there certainly are ways of looking at the people who inhabited the Roman Empire and the late Roman Empire and grouping them into classes the way that we would do that in America, which is really to say based on your material wealth, right? Um, yeah. what, how, you know, how big is your home? How much money do you have? And, and that sort of thing. But then there are also the sort of the, the old world way of thinking about this, which is about legal Privileges, legal rights, which yeah. often goes hand in hand with wealth. So the, the distinguishing of the two can be very difficult. And in the Roman world of the third century, in fact, the, the year 212 is actually going to be important for this. The emperor Caracalla. Uh, there hmm. are really two groups, humiliaries and Honestiores. And, and really what we mean, you know, hu- humiliories means you can you can hear humility there. Humble is the word that we might say. Low class is really the way to do that. And then an upper class, though, you can hear that they're called honest people, though honest actually just means wealthy, um, yeah. you know, up until about 1800 or so, or maybe about 1900 or so actually just means wealthy. And so you've got poor people and rich people, and they are actually rendered legally distinct in the third century, meaning there are there's one set of laws for poor people That's and right. one set of laws for rich people. And Gibbon does actually make a really big deal of that. That move, though, does also go hand in hand. It's almost the exact same moment with granting Roman citizenship to everyone who every non-slave man, every non-slave male, uh, adult male in who lives in Roman territory is now a Roman citizen, which is a, a pretty big that's a real dramatic change there. And then, but then also there's created this, this two distinct legal systems. And so that might be what Asimov has in mind here. We don't see that in the story.
1: No. I also wonder too, whether there could be a hint of reference to the, to Diocletian's reforms and the Mm. dominant, which really didn't freeze social classes. But as I recall, one of the reforms did do things like, uh, freeze wages and extensive price controls and uh, regulations on what occupations people could hold. I could be wrong about this. This is ah. not an area I know that well. But there was yeah. this attempt to kind of pin everything down to freeze things in place under Diocletian, if I recall correctly. You're, you're absolutely right. I wasn't thinking about
0: that. So, and uh, Diocletian's reign is in the the late third century he's the yep. emperor who is credited with solving what's called the third century crisis or the mid third century crisis which is to say that the roman empire almost fell in the third century uh and in effect it did break up into several different independent states for for decades but then there were a series of emperors diocletian being the last and most successful of them who worked very hard to reconstitute the whole thing and then it survived for you know another uh, at least 200 years or, or 200 years or so we can we can say uh, much changed. He's the person who um, creates a lot of this bureaucracy and uh, a number of other things. And one of the elements that you were just bringing up, Jay, of the third century crisis is a, a fiscal. Crisis. Uh, We used to call it an economic crisis, but I think we now really just see it as not so much a crisis of the entire economy, but a crisis of tax revenue for the state. Uh, But one of the tools that was used there was freezing prices, uh, saying, you know, you can only sell your X for, you know, Y amount of, you know, dollars um, and you can only buy it for that. And if you sell it for more or buy it for more or less or whatever, then now you're going to get fined. Totally impossible to actually enforce, but, you know, it's a document that we have and laws that we know he enacted. One of the other things that happened. Happens around this time though, or at least I should say that scholars in the 20th century are, you know, and, and, and also that Gibbon would have, would have agreed with one of the things that is also happening in this time is actually to do with a class of people that I really didn't talk about at all and ought to have when I was given that little prestigious there is slaves. Yeah. We should be clear. This is a slave society, right? The Roman Roman society is a slave society. You do know that from from Hollywood epics about this. Um, you know this if you've you know ever read any um, uh, any of uh, Christian scripture. As well, right, that uh, uh, Jesus, uh, the Gospels are about Jesus, who is living in the middle of the, the Roman or the beginning, I should say, of the Roman Empire right, during the reign of uh, Augustus and, and Tiberius, the first two emperors. And there's a lot of slaves in, in those in, in that story and those those four texts there, for example. So this is a slave society. One of the things that scholars used to say really until about 20, 30, maybe, you know, 40 years ago, which is basically nothing in in terms of scholarly fads, right, um, is that oh, one of the hallmarks of the late Roman Empire and getting into the Middle Ages is actually that the slave society disappears and is replaced by something else, something called the colonate, uh, C-O-L-O-N-A-T-E, in which we now have people who aren't slaves but also aren't free. They legally are treated like free people in terms of like what, um, what rules they have and what punishments they can get. And they are not the property of anyone They can't be bought and sold, but they do not have the right to mobility, any kind of mobility. They can't leave their job and they can't move to a new place and your kids are going to have to have the same job you have. Now, these are rules that only apply to certain types of people, a certain class or certain caste, maybe we could say of people. And so that might, might, might also be what Asimov has yeah, in mind. Here. Very possibly. Yeah. So there is, I guess, you know, thinking about the way Gibbon would have presented this, I think he would have pointed to the legal distinction between the honestiores and the humiliores and the uh, decline of the, slave society, of the slave society and its replacement with the colonnade as being a freezing of caste. And in fact, it's quite possible Gibbon actually uses this term. I don't know, better scholars, better podcasters would have looked that yeah, up before we got right, yeah. today. Uh, but, but we did not, I did not really, I should say, but that might be what he's got in mind there. So here's a Question though, in thinking about what you, what you call the sort of the, the the triple layering of this, is there an application of that to twentieth century United States, like to the to nineteen fifty
1: one? You know, I have no idea. Honestly, this is where I betray my complete ignorance of U.S. history, basically, except for what historians were studying in the twentieth century. Pretty much, I associate the post war era as an economic boom period Absolutely. in my mind, um, and. And one that is marked by increasing opportunities for uh, economic growth, for, for climbing the social ladder and, and things like this. So, well, the, the novel version of this was published in 1951. That's right, uh, yeah. So, you know, we're, we're – when he's writing this, we're probably just into the post-war years and maybe it's uncertain what the future is going to hold at this point. You would expect this to be a commentary on sort of social mobility at, at this particular moment. And I, I wonder what, uh, w- what his fears were for 20th century society. Um, it's possible that rather than thinking into, you know, I'm very much betraying my my sort of modern self here, I'm thinking in terms of economic mobility, it may be that what he had in mind was the continuing threat of authoritarianism or fascism, um, something like this um, of, of governments that overreach their, overreach their proper levels and try to impose social order on, on people or something like this. I'm honestly not sure yeah
0: I'm not sure either because the exact opposite of that is is happening in you know following the the second world war and and really following the depression and and growing out of the the New Deal that there's, and and out of the the war effort as well, which creates all this need for massive industrial production and that we've created what, what, you know, we often, I guess, call the welfare state, but the Keynesian economy that we are all definitely living in. I mean, we're recording this still in the COVID-19 pandemic where uh, it's January of 2021 as we're recording this. And so like new stimulus checks are the thing that are being, you know, one of the things anyway, that's being debated right now, which, you know, the idea of a stimulus check is a Keynesian economy move, right? of the idea yeah. of borrowing money. The government government borrowing money doesn't really matter. What matters is citizens spending money. And that is the world that the New Deal created. And it is booming here at this point and it has created all sorts of upward social mobility. But this also is true, actually, of the creation of the administrative state in the later Roman Empire as well that created this huge, amount of upward mobility for people who were already in the humiliorious class, but the low end of that mm. were now able to move up and getting your son or your grandson into a a bureaucratic post was a huge deal. That was going to ensure your family's uh, material well-being and access to power for a long time. It was a huge deal. And the New Deal in the United States, FDR's New Deal, does a lot of this as well, freeing up physical mobility and social mobility. And then even just thinking about what Asimov is personally up to at this time, or or, or people like Asimov, is... uh, Finishing up the war and now getting access to the GI Bill, which does two things: it lets uh, it lets former servicemen or service people go to college for free. And of course, we always talk about college as 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 being something that is going to going to make you upwardly socially is is going to improve your upward social mobility, and yeah. then also helps you buy a house. Uh, yeah. And in fact, even home ownership as a marker of of class and as a as a as a type of investment is something that only happens in the United States in the 1920s. And then the GI Bill makes that really the thing for almost a, you know a million families. Uh, I'm actually, in fact, currently I live in a house that was new construction at the time that Asimov was uh, was writing these stories. Actually, only about six miles from where where this house stands. In fact, wow. um, as a, to to sell to people who. Were we're going to use their GI Bill money to, to, to purchase it. And so, yeah, in both of these cases, the American case and the Roman case, we've actually got the rising bureaucracy creating the opposite of what I would describe as a freezing of caste. Yeah, absolutely well okay so that's a long time we have spent a lot of minutes we spent on half of this list but let's finish the list anyway so uh and maybe we can uh we'll, we'll take these a little bit more quickly but these these there's two here that seem to be more about culture than about society or cultural history rather than social history and the first one of these is a receding initiative
1: i don't know what that means yeah i mean so this is some kind of commentary on uh on you know the idea of Leaders or persons in power growing overly lethargic, um, perhaps giving in to sort of uh, decadence and luxury rather than industry and productive being productive leaders of society. I, I have to imagine that's sort of what's in the back of Asimov's mind here. That it's this sort of commentary on the 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 growing weakness of the leader class um, within the Galactic Empire, that there's no longer the push to expand the empire to improve things, that it's kind of resting on its laurels at this point.
0: Yeah, I think that is probably right. I mean, certainly in terms of we're thinking about military expansion, you know, this is the the, the military expansion of the Roman Empire is something that is regarded as having stopped in the the second century, had been way slowed down, really even actually as the thing we call the Roman Empire is even getting started. Augustus famously called for the sort of the end of of expansion for the sake of expansion. And the expansion of Roman power, the conquest of, of territories was actually rooted in the Republican institutions and the competition among uh, powerful families that those institutions created. And so now there's no more need for that. And in fact, Augustus wants to control that. He does not want uh, other political people, other political figures going out and conquering someplace, becoming enormously wealthy because of it and building loyalty of soldiers that way. So, you know, that's a big part of why he wants to call, uh, you know, put an end to that. But that doesn't last forever. There are emperors who go conquering. Conquer other places, right? Britain is added to the empire at this time. Uh, Romania, uh, parts of Africa. Uh, Mesopotamia is briefly conquered as well. But all of that stops in the second century. And in fact, again, we can point to the film Gladiator, which is, you know, overlaps with yeah. where Gibbon starts his book. That's that's That war, the, the Macromani War, the, the Macromani are the people that uh, Marcus Aurelius is fighting at the uh, the opening of the film Gladiator. That is really the last war of uh, attempted war of expansion that the Roman Empire fights. And after that, it is just centuries of losing bits of, of territory here and there and and trying to protect the trying to protect the borders, I guess, or at least that's that's the way Edward Gibbon characterizes it at any rate and so yeah that lack of expansionism there but then also i think he must be pointing as well as you say jay to the fact that hey the emperors just live in their palace and like play video games or whatever because they're yeah, kids right exactly and, and we do see that in in the later roman empire as well this kind of looking this looking inward the sense that there are these really great populous cities in the mediterranean heartland of the roman empire uh decadent is a word that l- people would use to describe them in meaning like decaying right uh well there's all this other stuff happening on the frontier but no one no one in these cosmopolitan cities cares about that and yeah you could definitely look around 20th century america and and say that for sure yeah so the other thing that we have here is a damning of curiosity. And uh, what, do, what do you think is going on with that?
1: <laughs> I mean, so it's interesting that when I first read the book, I missed that it was a dam as in we are constructing a dam. I actually thought oh, it correct. was we're damning, curio- like we're condemning curiosity or something. It wasn't until I just renoticed right here that I see it's damning as in stopping it up. I mean, so this is interesting and it gets at several Several sort of weirdnesses about Asimov's depiction of the end of the Galactic Empire. If you were reading Gibbon, if you read Gibbon and then were asked what was the thing that damned up curiosity in the late Roman Empire, I think the inescapable conclusion is that it would be Christianity, right? Absolutely right. I think what we're talking about here is 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 knowledge
0: and science, right? That's what Asimov means yeah. by curiosity and engagement with trying to understand the world, and 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 trying to materially change the world. And he must be thinking about Christianity here, which is yeah. which is really quite interesting. And, and he's thinking about Christianity the way that Gibbon thinks about Christianity. Edward Gibbon is famous for pinning the fall of the Roman Empire on christianity right christianity as we we, yep. we said grows up in the roman empire around the time of augustus and tiberius the first two emperors uh, christianity becomes the religion of the emperors uh, at the end of diocletian's reign it's the emperor constantine who reigns in the the first third of the fourth centuries so we'll just say roughly 300 to 330 it's, it's not you know precise yeah, sure. but we'll just say that for these purposes here <laughs> roughly then he is the first emperor who is a Christian. Over the course of the fourth century, the Roman Empire becomes a christian empire it is not actually the most commonly practiced religion but it becomes the most commonly practiced religion in cities and among the upper class certainly by the year 450 i shouldn't say certainly there i'll say by the year 450 everything that we are saying by the way we should just be clear is content is is contested by some scholar or another (laughs) we want to be clear about that but that would that's what i would say is by 450 it is the most it is really the dominant religion of the aristocratic classes and and the cities and and that the Roman Empire really is a collection of cities. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. And but But Gibbon looks at Christianity and says, Christianity is obsessed with the afterlife, doesn't care yeah. about the present world. It preaches this message that says, this world does not matter because when you die, you're going to go to another world and that's where you're going to live forever. So really you're just here to wait to die yeah. so that it, you can have that eternal life. So there's nothing worth doing. There's nothing worth fighting or being interested in
1: <laughs> here on this earth. And it, you know, again, according to Gibbon, preaches this idea of the kind of reversing of the moral hierarchy where um, you embrace suffering, you embrace poverty, you embrace persecution, and that this kind of saps the Roman Empire in some ways. Right, and and the other side of this, so that's the cultural side of of
0: yeah. of Christianity as a religion. The other side of it is institutional or or social. Gibbon says explicitly, and this is actually, I think, should have thought of this before. We can link this right back up to a receding initiative. Gibbon says explicitly that Christianity undermines the Roman Empire because it makes makes joining a Christian monastery more attractive than joining the Roman army. And so good, honest Roman citizens are no longer joining the Roman army, but are are being are are practicing Christianity and staying at home, or even worse, becoming monks. And so there's no recruitment to the Roman army. And therefore, the roman state has to recruit its armies from foreigners from barbarians you know yeah. living living <laughs> across the border the savages right and gibbon this is this is this is the reason gibbon says the roman empire falls it's christianity culturally and institutionally and that, and i think that must be the the parallel that, that asimov it is making is. here
1: <laughs> although it's very subtle right there's never to the extent that religion begins to appear in this book um, in part two, part three, I guess, um, it appears there as one of the driving factors of the renaissance of the Empire, um, of of the, the move out of the Dark Ages in right. some ways. Um, that'll be something to talk about down the road. But it is very interesting here that Asimov hints at this idea that somehow um, the cultural vibrancy of the Galactic Empire is being... Um, drained, but does not draw the explicit connection that Gibbon does to a new religion as the source of of that damning of curiosity.
0: Right. It's just not here. We should be clear. Asimov is not condemning Christianity (laughs) here in this book. Correct. Christianity is not the religion of this empire. People living in this empire have never heard of Christianity. It's never existed for them because we are simply that far In the future, in fact, Earth is even like itself a a mythical place uh, in in this culture. It's we're we're that far in the in the future here. So Asimov is not being uh, critical of or condemning Christianity in any way, and in fact, he's not even pointing to any kind of religion here at at all and you know asimov is a scientist that's what he's doing at the naval yard he's working as a a scientist and engineer uh at the at the naval yard and to to help out you know working in the in the war effort here and so for him right stopping science is really i think what he's what he really means here right to him that would be the worst thing that could possibly happen and again here i don't think we actually have a real parallel with the united states which you know just well certainly at, at the point that he's written these lines has dropped Nuclear bombs, yeah, on another country has has shown no damning of curiosity, right? Has shown, in fact, we have harnessed the power of the atom, which is actually going to uh, dominate yeah. the other parts of this uh, of this book as as well. So, you know, I think we started by we took these in order, and we uh, well, I shouldn't speak for you, Jay, but I will say that I read just thinking through this live on the air. Uh, I read Rising Bureaucracy as a critique of america and a critique of the new deal but all these others don't seem to be a critique they seem to be a like a, ca- a caution don't yeah, do these things in the i future. agree
1: it's a cautionary tale that's exactly right yeah
0: yeah yeah all right so we've i know we've been on this passage for a long time but i want to do a couple more things with it before we move on because i just want to talk about what's not On this list that we might actually expect to see here when talking about the fall of the Roman empire, in terms of thinking about Edward Gibbon, in terms of thinking also about scholars working a contemporary with Asimov, what's missing here are barbarians. Where are the barbarians? (laughs) That's exactly right. Yeah. They're not here here at all. There's no external force. There can't be because like literally every human being is a citizen of the galactic empire and there are no aliens in this, in this world.
1: But, you know, I, I thought, you know, in advance of recording this, I thought a lot about this fact um, that there's no external pressure, that the collapse right. of the Roman Empire is internal here, which, you know, gets at the, you know, you can talk more about this than me. It gets at the sort of two sides of a historiographic debate about the end of the Roman Empire. The movers and the shakers did Rome fall because of internal weaknesses or external pressures. But it's so funny. I think, I think this is true, although I have only a hunch. But if you look at the ways in which the fall of the Roman Empire has been mobilized as a metaphor in various literary works, which it has been time and time and time again, I think you usually find that what Asimov has done here is the way writers go, that they want the end of the empire to come from within because they want it to be a a story about pride, about the dangers of arrogant expansionism. They want it to be a story of the empire that overreached itself or something like this, because this is for whatever reason, a a better cautionary tale than, yeah, some dudes just showed up at your door and conquered you or something like that. And so I really think that when the idea of the end of Rome gets mobilized In literature, authors are just going to naturally favor those internal explanations rather than these external barbarians at the gate kind of stories. Exactly. I have a lot to say about this. First
0: thing I want to say, though, is you just called this movers and shakers. And I want to be clear that that is a label that um, historian Guy Halsell at the University of York uh, used. He took that from a song by The Clash. But I, you know, I don't know if Guy Halsell is going to listen to this episode, but hey, in case he does, or you know, some of his students actually might because they're friends of ours. But uh, just to be clear, Guy Halsell uh, coined that term. But it is this, this looking at the, the external versus the internal uh, uh, factors that go into this. And there are two different traditions of that. in Gibbon is definitely in the internal yeah. factors. And most American scholars end up in that camp as well. And actually, maybe most British scholars do also. And it is because British scholars have been most interested in the Roman Empire when they've had their own empire yeah and guess what? That's been true of Americans as well. And so, even really good scholars who are trying not to be thinking about their own concerns, which is not true of given. Let's be clear about that, um, cannot jettison the fact that we we just have this anxiety about how long is our empire? How long is our privileged position at the top of the global hegemony going to last? Because it, yeah. we know it is not going to be permanence. And so, you know, what are the factors that led to the collapse of the most successful empire in history? And what lessons can we learn from it? What things do we need to beware of? And so here's Asimov giving his list, his cautionary yep. tale, beware of rising bureaucracy, beware of receding initiative, beware of receding, freezing of caste, beware of damning of curiosity, right? A hundred other factors too, but those four that he you know lists explicitly have got to be the most important ones for Asimov. And so, yeah, it's a cautionary tale. But there is also a really long tradition of people looking at barbarians and looking at the external factors and saying, what is it about the barbarians that allowed them to defeat Roman armies and to conquer Roman cities and to break up, to disintegrate the provinces and territories of the Roman Empire and create new states out of them? That historiographical tradition cannot be separated from the invention of race and ethnicity as categories, and in particular, the growth of scientific racism, which is the ideological root that eventually leads to the Holocaust as well. This idea that there is actually something biologically innate about peoples that makes them better or worse than some other people's. And the tradition, the historiographical tradition here goes hand in hand with the the rise of Nazism because the barbarians who run these polities, these states that succeed the Roman Empire have in modern historiography been identified as being Germanic, as being German in some way, as being proto-German. And so Germans in the 19th century and then in the early 20th century would point to this success, the overthrow of the most successful empire in world history as being proof of their innate biological superiority, even though they themselves didn't have a civilization at this point. They didn't need one to take down Rome because of their biological
1: superiority. Ironically, aided and abetted by a Roman's own writing about the Germans, Tacitus's <laughs> Germania, um, right. which talks about the racial purity of the Germans—not exactly in those terms—they're kind of free, uncontrolled spirit and stuff like this. Right, and this becomes a huge part of the understanding of the early Middle Ages, which we will talk more about
0: in the the, the second installment uh, of this of this series for sure. But becomes a way of explaining class in modernity right there's a whole tradition in france that says french aristocrats in the uh, 16th 17th and 18th century are the descendants of the germanic conquerors the franks and the peasants in france uh, who you know hey spoiler in uh, you know the end of the 18th century are going to take matters into their own hands but they're the descendants of the romans who have been conquered and so there's yes. a, 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 a blood tradition a biological inheritance of of aristocracy and nobility and better Uh, even just inherent there in the class tensions of early modern France, for example. And we have definitely, since the Second World War, of course, gone away from anyone having that reading. And in fact, much of the work that's going on uh, in universities by scholars uh, of of the end of the Roman Empire, of what we now call late antiquity, while Asimov is is writing, uh, maybe here in 1951, and then certainly as he's writing the sequels to this book, are revisiting this uh, this idea for sure. So those have been really the two big ways of looking at the fall of Rome: the external factor of barbarians and the internal factor of Christians. That's the milieu that Asimov would have been familiar with. But I, I do want to take a moment here just to talk about some things that have happened since Asimov wrote this book that I think Asimov would have been really really interested in, which is that we are now using uh, physical sciences to take a look at what the world. Of, the, of late antiquity, of the late Roman Empire was like, and are now looking at environmental factors in the the, the disintegration and, and decline of this state and the material culture that it was wrapped up in by looking at climate change and
1: looking at uh, something that I think is really important to us now, which is to say, plague. Asimov would have been absolutely fascinated by current scholarship on sort of um, environmental causes, um, behind shifts in human civilization or human society or demographics or whatever other term you want to use for it. Um, and certainly plague studies right now, um, studies of epidemics would also have been something to fascinated him. The only thing I think I would say there is that Asimov again, like, I think a lot of writers really wants the story of the end of the galactic empire And this is a bit of a paradox in some ways, but he wants it to be the story of sort of human structural failings in a lot of ways, right? If you look over his list of things that are causing it, they're giant macro factors, and and Selden talks about this, right? The end of an empire is a massive thing. But you look at that list right there, rising bureaucracy, receding initiative – freezing of case and a damning of curiosity they are all still human factors they're social structures um, as opposed to sort of natural effects or anything like this and in that sense he still wants to sort of keep it a kind of social story a social morality tale in some ways um, now a lot of people I think now would respond well environmental change is a human story it is a social story don't, don't separate the social and the natural so easily or anything like this but I think he would be fascinated by these ideas of new ways of conceiving the the mechanism behind massive changes like the end of the Roman Empire. But I wonder if he would have written about them. Well, I think that's a fascinating question is the the, the other Asimov book that I've done
0: here on ATAS is Asimov's novel, The Gods Themselves, which is written oh. 20 years later than this, 1972. That's a book I read, by the way, entirely on the bus to, to see you in New York to go to the, the Tolkien exhibit oh, <laughs> and nice. then and finished on the way back. Uh, but that's the only other Asimov book that, that, that I've done here on the show. I think it's episode four. So, you know, way, way back at this point. Uh, uh, but that is actually Asimov's novel about climate change.
1: Oh, really? I haven't read it. Well, there you go. There's the question. So I'm wrong. He would have written about it.
0: Yeah. Well, but, but of course, you know, he's he's a different person by 20 years when he writes that yeah, book versus true. now. So, you know, and then the concerns are different as well. And I think we can say definitively that Foundation would be a very different book if it was not about these internal factors, but was about yeah. external factors. right? And, and, and let's be clear, right? Plague and climate change are external. They may as well be barbarians, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and Asimov, as you say, wants to point to the structures of this civilization, of this society, show where they are weak uh, and and what you know ought to have been done to strengthen them to prevent the fall. And what he really means is, what does America
1: have to do? Yeah, that's right.
0: Well, let's take a look at a, a second passage here. And Again, this is in Selden's speech. This is just on the very next page. It's on page 29 of the edition that we're using. Here's what he has to say. The empire, gentlemen, as has just been said... "...has stood 12,000 years. The Dark Ages to come will endure not 12, but 30,000 years. A second empire will rise, but between it and our civilization will be 1,000 generations of suffering humanity. We must fight that. With the destruction of our social fabric, science will be broken into a million pieces. Individuals will know much of exceedingly tiny facets of what there is to know. They will be helpless and useless by themselves." The bits of lore, meaningless, will not be passed on. They will be lost through the generations. But if we now prepare a giant summary of all knowledge, it will never be lost. Coming generations will build on it, and will not have to rediscover it for themselves. One millennium will do the work of 30,000. So let's uh, let's go wow. through these. <laughs> yeah. So let's. There's a lot here. Let's go through these consequences of the fall of the Galactic Empire and 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 see what they tell us about. Well, one, I guess, about Asimov's understanding of the Middle Ages, and then we can also think about what they tell us about Asimov's own political ideology and his own uh, own circumstances here. So. As the so as someone who works on the Middle Ages, as a medievalist, Jay, uh, does this sound like a, a a kind assessment, a kind description no, of the Middle no, Ages? No, it
1: does not. I mean, it's a very, it's a very mid twentieth century take on what it means to lose civilization. Uh, Right at the very forefront of Asimov's idea right here is that science will be broken into a million pieces. Individuals will know much of exceedingly tiny facets of what there is to know. They will be helpless and useless by themselves. What's really remarkable to me about this passage is that it makes this kind of gesture to the loss of social fabric. One sentence, the destruction of our social fabric, and then talks about the loss of science and sort of lavishes more and more prose on that topic right there. This is not a kind treatment of the Middle Ages, a a common stereotype um, about sort of the loss of knowledge, uh, the loss of technical know-how as we transition from the Roman Empire into the Middle Ages. But what's really remarkable here is how much he focuses specifically on that one issue, the loss of science. Um, as if this this one thing will be the catastrophe that will sort of tear society apart. Right. And what he means
0: even by tearing society apart is just is really quite, really, really quite unclear. But Super it's, unclear. But the consequences that he seems to be talking about here are simply just about humans across different planets being able to communicate. With yeah. each other, and that for that reason, science is going to 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 be terrible. But you know, I think if you've still got an entire planet with like a billion or ten billion people on it, uh, they can still do some science. Right. Yeah. And, and what reason is there that people would not be able to continue to communicate with each other? Right. What is the consequence? It seems like he is presuming that a consequence of the fragmentation of the galactic empire, its disintegration into a handful, maybe many handfuls of of, of separate parts is going to preclude space travel. But Correct. we don't know why he doesn't yeah. show us it here in any way that, that there's something about the imperial bureaucracy, the imperial
1: institutions that space travel depends on. We don't see that. He doesn't present that to us. No. I mean, all he wants to do is posit a connection between anarchy, which is one of the words he uses right here to reduce the duration of an anarchy to a single millennium some connection between anarchy and the loss of scientific knowledge. It's unclear if anarchy is going to cause the loss of science or vice versa. What, what exactly the causal relationship is here, but the presence of this word anarchy, I'm not sure if this was in the part of the passage you read, um, but he says, I do not now say we can prevent the fall, but it is not yet late to shorten the interregnum, another interesting word, Mm -hmm. which will follow. It is possible gentlemen to reduce the duration of anarchy to a single moment millennium so i I mentioned earlier that one of the things in asimov's head seems to be order which anarchy is the opposite of anarchos without order um and and he has this notion somehow that the collapse of the empire is going to have these two consequences the loss of scientific knowledge and anarchy um but beyond that we don't really get much explanation why right um an empire of 10,000 planets is still a pretty big empire, right? And yet is only 1,000th of the galactic empire, things like this. And he shows us a little bit of this fragmentation and anarchy afterwards, but has only the barest sense in which like scientific knowledge is actually going to be lost. In the passage that I read, uh, it was it's suffering humanity <laughs> yeah, rather than exactly. anarchy there, right? But he's That's using right. them
0: interchangeably, right? Anarchy is going to be I- equate with human suffering, yeah. but he's not actually talking about anything material here. He's no. not saying that if the empire collapses as a state and breaks into these these fragments, even just each planet left to its own devices, in what way are humans going to suffer? Are people going to have? Less to eat are people going to starve? Are people not going to be able to build homes? are they not going to have sources of energy to yeah. to do things with right in what way is material civilization going to be affected here do, do, you know which is what I would associate with suffering
1: yeah is absolutely. is being
0: exposed to the hardships of the natural world right an actual collapse of civilization, but he doesn't show us that
1: a- at all. I think Asimov is much more comfortable thinking about questions about. Uh, the continuity of scientific knowledge and sort of what its loss might entail, then he is thinking about um, the kind of social implications of the collapse of a civilization or something like that, which is to say he's he's much more comfortable thinking um, about the kind of overt losses, the easily quantifiable losses and a less comfortable thinking about the kind of vast um, social implications of the breakup of an empire.
0: Right. Absolutely. This is Asimov thinking like uh, an intellectual historian or a historian of science, which is something that he did uh, on an amateur level. Many of his books are actually about that. I mean, he has you know professional scientific training, but not not historical training, I should say. And this is often the perception of the Middle Ages. And we should be clear here, right? That that Asimov does not call this the Middle Ages. What he calls it is the dark, the dark age, age, right? Which which is a term that we do not use at all anymore to refer to the Middle Ages or even to refer to the early Middle Ages. There was a there was a moment there where we stopped applying it to all the whole Middle Ages, but kept applying it to the early Middle Ages. Yeah. But we don't do that anymore. When we were kids, too, by the way, I don't know if I've ever actually told you this. You know, we were reading similar books, sometimes the same books independently and, and getting interested in these same things that have all led to this conversation today as if it was fate. Uh, what One of the books that I had checked out of our local public library was about the Middle Ages, but that kept calling them the Dark Ages, but didn't define Uh. what that meant. And so I was left with the assumption that... They were literally dark. That like something was wrong with the sun for like <laughs> a thousand years, which you know, wow. Uh, turns out not to be true. But so let's define what dark ages means here, right? It it means a period that is inaccessible, that cannot be seen, is not visible to uh, us here in the modern world because the people of that period didn't leave behind any writing. And there are there are periods of human history where that is a, a, a true thing, but that's an accurate way to describe what is going on there. Like there's a 300 year period here, a hundred year period there where we just don't have any writing from them and so can't access them. But wow, is that not true of any part of the Middle Ages, even the early Middle Ages? And in fact, the exact opposite is true. We have more writing from the Middle Ages than from all of antiquity.
1: Correct. Yeah, by far.
0: And, and given that that's true, Jay, where does this tradition of calling the Middle Ages Dark Ages, which is obviously a disparaging thing to say,
1: where does that come from? Yeah, I mean, so there are several different answers to this question. Um, I think that a lot of this idea comes from uh, the 14th and 15th century when scholars associated with what we now call the Italian Renaissance coined the term Middle Ages, the Middle Ages of Europe, to talk about this kind of backward, superstitious unsophisticated thousand years that had come before them um, and that they really wanted to connect themselves back to the era of the Roman empire and to see themselves as kind of uh, the reemergence of a kind of cultural sophistication that had been lost for the previous thousand years. I think that's one of the main places in which this idea comes from, but it's been hammered home in so many different ways and by so many different people since Um, the 15th century, that it's tough to give it a a kind of precise genealogy. So, for instance, while it's true that there are a lot more writings available from the Middle Ages than from antiquity by by a considerable margin, some scholars, older scholars, um, will tell you older as in lived a long time ago not are currently older we'll tell you that the middle ages was kind of an era defined by authority um that a lot of their works are very derivative are reliant on previous works that they were kind of subservient to the authority of the church and so forth and so even if there's a lot of writings they don't possess the same kind of creative energy as the works from late antiquity which i think has something to do with the bad reputation um That the Middle Ages had, especially in Asimov's day, I think, um, and especially amongst people who think about historical progress in terms of scientific progress.
0: Yeah, that's a great explanation. I think we can even actually go back to the the, the list of, uh, of, of four factors we were talking about in the previous passage, the receding initiative and the damning of curiosity here, yeah. where Asimov, like so many other people in modernity, and, you know, like all of our students <laughs> always, right, have this idea that modern people are these, you know, Individual spirits with uh, you know this free will and who are operating in the world independently and doing what they want and being curious about things and that that was true of you know ancient Greeks and ancient Romans as well especially ancient Greeks right that that yeah. we we look back to Athens and find kinship with socrates and plato and aristotle and then look at the middle ages and say ah but there's just all this corporatism there these people were just they were all subjects of the pope (laughs) and uh just had to do what the pope said and the pope definitely didn't want anyone to know anything about anything because then the pope would lose power yeah something like that all of which is so
1: much (laughs) it's all there's no philosophers (laughs) in the middle ages (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> exactly. And that's, uh, no philosophers, no scientists, those, and those things, of course, are just total nonsense. Yeah. But this was the tradition for so long The you know, in early modernity, for sure, as this idea is even being invented, the 19th century and uh, the early 20th century as well. And in fact, the early 20th century, I don't know how much Asimov would have been aware of this, right, as a period where medievalists are starting to push back on this idea.
1: Yeah. So the, often... Summed up in the phrase, the revolt of the medievalists, um, perhaps made most famous by the book of Charles Homer Haskins called The Renaissance of the 12th Century, which is a term that has stuck um, for medieval historians, even if all the arguments that Haskins laid out in that book um, are not accepted uncritically at this point. (laughs) But definitely there is now, I wouldn't say a consensus, but certainly an overwhelming sense that the idea of a significant intellectual and cultural rebirth or revival or whatever other word that starts with R E that you want to use took place during the 12th century. Um, the beginnings of the universities, um, the rediscovery of Aristotle by the 13th century, um, a huge efflorescence in spiritual writing and devotional writing, Um, Substantial new work being done on theology, um, substantial production in art and architecture, really, you know, everything that we associate with the 15th century Renaissance as kind of a multi, multi, not multicultural, as a kind of multi-medium uh, development was really taking place in the 12th century. And since then, of course, um, the, the term Renaissance has been seized by medievalists and applied to several other uh, moments in the Middle Ages as well, such that it is now common to speak of an Ottonian Renaissance, a Carolingian Renaissance. Uh, I'm sure there's other ones that I'm forgetting at the moment. Uh, Wasn't there an Anglo-Saxon Renaissance at some point or something? Yeah, this, right at this point, <laughs> we're just using that yeah. term to mean like cultural flourishing. And yeah. really no, just to I mean, mean like we've got a lot of text from this one period. Correct. I, I, I think sometimes the, the term is used in a targeted way to talk about the revival of certain traditions. And then often the term is just used to talk about... Moments that need to be better appreciated for their cultural achievements, which is something that does get applied. You know, that's been the work of medievalists in some ways for a long time now is to point out um, the the really substantial cultural and intellectual achievements that took place during the Middle Ages um, in whatever field of thought or cultural production we want to talk about. And my guess is Asimov, I, I don't think Haskins work was well known. Outside of the academy um, at that point, and possibly not even that well known outside of medieval history circles. So there's there's very little chance that I think Asimov would have been aware of this growing counter narrative um, about the Middle Ages. But yeah, so that's one area where like medievalists are
0: pushing back and saying, hey, that's actually not what the Middle Ages were like at all. This idea then does also get pushed back on later in, in really post-dating what Asimov is doing here, post-dating the writing of Foundation, where people who actually study the scientific revolution and the Renaissance are saying, yeah, actually, that's not what the Renaissance or the scientific revolution were like either. There's a, a really famous book by uh, scholar Stephen Shapin uh, that begins with, there was no such thing as the scientific revolution. And this is a book about it. Yeah, uh, it's a brilliant start. Yeah, it is a brilliant. One of the. I mean, it is the greatest opening line of like any any historical book ever. And he's really asking the question of how scientific was the scientific revolution and how revolutionary was it. And he you know points to two different things there. One, it wasn't revolutionary because. Uh, this was a handful of of dudes doing this work for themselves and for each other that really didn't affect broad civilization or broad society at all but then also these guys were superstitious themselves they, they were not yeah. necessi- they were not like rational in the way that Isaac Asimov wants them to be Isaac Newton believed in biblical prophecy spent a lot of time working on that thought for sure that he was going to you know be able to transmute Led into yeah, gold they were like any day now yeah. they were alchemists exactly and in fact much of the superstition that we attribute to the middle ages in our pop culture is actually more appropriately attributed to the to the period of early modernity things like witchcraft and sorcery yeah. and and so on is actually more appropriate to the period of the scientific revolution than to the middle ages absolutely well, let's, let's talk about one more thing on this part of our outline before we move into the last bit today, or second to last bit, but we'll be wrapping up here shortly, which is simply that what does this characterization of what this Dark Age is going to be like, this, this characterization of what's going to happen when the Galactic Empire falls, what does this tell us about Asimov's own political
1: philosophy, right? What does he think government is for? It's such a great question, and I, I've been pondering it quite a lot. And I I have to conclude that I'm not really sure. The book does not read, for instance, to me, as a kind of endorsement of the liberal nation state or anything like that, right? There's no talk about freedom or liberties or personal freedoms or anything like that in this book. Um, in fact, in some ways, the entire book is a series of a story, a series of stories of individual men seizing power at particularly important moments um, in history, which strikes me as very odd in a lot of ways. Um, Thinking about these terms that are used about the end of the empire, the tearing of social fabric, um, the rise of human suffering, um, the emergence of anarchy. It does seem to me overall um, that what Asimov Seems to be saying, and I can't wrap my head around this, is that um, government is there to preserve an orderly society. And yet somehow that's not what I want the book to be about. And I'm confused by this fact. Well, I think that that is definitely
0: true, right? That Asimov clearly thinks that a world without government uh, and a world without big government in particular yeah. is, is going to be a bad world, that that's a world with, with human suffering. But hey, guess what? Asimov just lived through the Great Depression. so It's true.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point that they're there to provide for their citizens and, and things like this. I mean, we can pick this up in parts two, three, and four, because it's interesting, actually, in the end, how little of a theme that becomes in some ways, we don't, we don't see any of the characters in Asimov's story being concerned with like, where am I going to get food for my population at this point? Um, We see them preoccupied with very different issues in some ways. And yet, yeah, what they're saying right here is that they're there to prevent human suffering, which is very much of a piece with with FDR's New Deal and sort of the emergence of social safety net and things like that that he would be thinking about. But at the same time,
0: this is all about science here in this passage. And and as we do get into the other the other parts of this book, we're going to see that although there is no real worry ever about providing food for people, there is worry about industry. And so Asimov here seems to be thinking about, you know, this suffering in terms of loss of advanced, sophisticated scientific knowledge and loss of sophisticated, heavy industry. Yeah. Deindustrialization.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's his main worry that that things are going to deindustrialize at some point. Right. But doesn't point to something, to anything that we would lose from
0: that. Like, what is the product that we need heavy industry to make that, you know, we're going to suffer from not having like there's no doesn't really ever point to that anywhere anywhere in the in the book and certainly not at this point so that itself is interesting i I do i do wonder though at at this point right 1951 as he's writing these lines here setting all of this up for stories that he's already written during the war but now we're after the war asimov is himself educated right has uh, graduate education has been working as a scientist and an engineer and of course is now starting to make a living actually selling these scientific fiction stories and selling novels and so on. But he's someone who believes in education, who believes in universities and believes in science and knowledge. And now he's living in a world where there is the GI Bill, which is also, which is advancing Mm. knowledge is creating higher education as an actual like industry in the United States. Of course we're now watching the complete and utter collapse of it. You and I are being very directly affected by yeah. that as that contraction is happening. But Asimov is writing this book at the construction of this system that you and I have 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 grown up in. And presumably he's seeing that as a really awesome thing.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. If if there's one part of this book that will now strike readers academic real readers as wildly implausible. (laughs) It is the idea that Harry Seldon has this project, which apparently employs something like a hundred thousand (laughs) people in it. And based after being accused of treason, um, he's basically able to talk his way into unlimited state-sponsored funding for his project <laughs> on another planet, whose only purpose is to produce a really big encyclopedia. Um, and anyone now who has applied for an NEH or an ACLS or anything like that will see in this <laughs> a world that no longer exists. But this is, I think, a world that existed at the beginning of the Cold War, where the government That's was right.
0: really throwing money at any scholar, any scientist who could use it for something. Correct. Because we definitely, and in fact, maybe we should take a step back here too. And, and you know, I've been talking about this really in terms of like domestic things going on in the United States, but yeah, there's this whole Cold War thing going on here. Correct. There's an arms race. There's about to be a space race. Right, Knowledge of science is a weapon in the world Correct. that Asimov is writing this, this story in, and maybe that's really behind this and, and is why the government is funding universities and funding scholarship and, and science in ways
1: that uh, it, it no longer is. And ironically, one of the ways in which all of this was defended, we can, we can talk about this at some point, um, in the context of the Cold War um, was that the West read as liberalism. The West was the place where science and history and things like this were being pursued in non-ideological ways, where we had objective good science, where we had objective good history. And this is what sets us apart from communism, where they pervert science and pervert history to ideological purposes. And so interestingly, even though it was an obviously ideological position to take here. Nonetheless, science um, and scientific studies were being held up as one of the things that distinguished the objective, rational, unbiased West from from the communist states.
0: That is an awesome observation. And we can read that back into... Asimov's understanding of like the periodization of history, because that is probably how he would describe the Middle Ages as well. Yeah. That all of that—that that, yes, it's true. There was a lot of scholarship. I, I concede that there's more writing from the Middle Ages left than from antiquity, and, and more produced, not even just survived, more produced. I can he would concede that point, but he would probably say it was all twisted by uh, yeah. the, the by ideological motivations or, or or hampered by having to be fit into a christian cosmology and such that if your observations didn't line up with that then the observations were bad not the cosmology absolutely so seeing that is the same thing and then in the same way that 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 people in early modernity and you know in the 20th century and today look back and see ancient athens as being the foundational moment of liberalism, right, of of democracy and of of individual rights and also individual uh, contribution to society and rationality, which is you know what we, how we would characterize our own society, our own culture. That that that's the throughline, and it's interrupted by yeah. this ideologically constricted civilization.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the funny thing about Harry Seldon as a hero for the book, to the extent that he is the hero of the book, is that what what makes him the hero is his infallibility, um, right? He's got it all worked out. He's got everything right. He is the pinnacle of correct knowledge of getting it right in a lot of ways, right? He's not a sympathetic character in any sense. (laughs) You don't want to get a drink with him or anything (laughs) like that. And he's so right that as we'll see in the next couple of parts, he can't even trust, right? His project (laughs) leaders with what's really going on, right? He's got it worked out beyond all of them and has to reappear at moments to sort of shape things on the right course and so forth. This is definitely, um, the kind of hero that you could imagine or the kind of figure you could imagine being very attractive in a Cold War kind of context, right? Someone whose rightness transcends ideology or social context or problem like that, the comfort, the, the sort of comfort that comes from knowing, yep, we, we know the right
0: stuff. And if if only these dumb government bureaucrats would listen to university exactly. professors more, right? As scientists, maybe in particular, but scholars in general as well. I mean, that is the the fantasy that is happening here, and it is definitely a fantasy. But we should turn to talking about Selden and his academic discipline of psychohistory, which <laughs> oh is, I, I guess, you know, a combination of psychology and history. It is it is using math to predict the future. Cr- narrative like the narrative of the future the course of events in the future not in an abstract way but in a hyper specific way and pinpointed to again very specific points in time i'm having a hard time characterizing it because it just seems so
1: nonsensical because it's neither psychology nor history
0: (laughs) correct but (laughs) let's let's try to Take psychohistory seriously as yeah, a, as, a, as an academic discipline. So, in what way, Jay, do you think is is psychohistory related to the academic discipline of history? But maybe actually, we should first
1: start with like, hey, what is the academic discipline of history? Oh, okay. I'm going to start with the first question, actually. How is psycho? <laughs> no, because it will help me answer the second question. I think in some ways, one way to approach it is to think of sort of two classical schools of ways of approaching evidence from the past. Um, And those two ways are historicism and positivism. And I think sometimes people confuse what these are. They're both kind of empirical. They're both kind of empiricists in some ways. That is to say they deal with evidence and they work from evidence to knowledge and stuff like that. So historicism, which is kind of the famous position of Leopold von Ranke, the tell what really happened. um, Sometimes Ranke is called a positivist, but he's really not. Um, because his basic position is that you have to take the past on its own terms. Um, and this is a position lots of historians would agree with. We don't impose ourselves on the past. We take the past on its own terms, and in his words, we tell what actually happened. Or a better translation, according to Peter Novick, would be tell what essentially happened. Tell the essence of what happened. Let the past speak on its own terms. Now, positivism, which is much closer to what psychohistory is, positivism is a school of thought that says, all right, you have to work from evidence to verifiable facts. And from facts, you go back to explanations. But one of the things that really distinguishes positivism is the idea that in looking for explanations, that history is something to be explained, uh, what you ultimately want to work to is laws. Laws that govern the progress of human society or the shape or the trajectory of human society. And that there are certain impersonal laws dictating how history happens. And this is exactly the opposite of historicism. Instead of saying, take the past on its own terms. You say you understand the past as it sort of reveals these laws of human society and so forth. So, you know, there's tons of positivist thinkers. Marx has positivist leanings and stuff like that, but it really gets more associated now or in the fifties with sociology and fields like that. Really, if psychohistory is a field, it's closer to sociology than it is to history, I think, um, in that it works a lot with quantification, in that it looks for um, explanations for why did a rebellion happen at this place and this time, and not at this place and this time. It's very concerned with causality and stuff like that, and so psychohistory is really a highly, an extremely positivistic way of approaching. History, the idea that there are laws that will allow you to understand cause and effect in human history
0: that is a great characterization of what psychohistory is right he's what what harry seldon is trying to do here is to as you said quantify is trying to figure out how to assign numerical values to the the various factors that went into a particular uh, event uh, or you know what were the causes of yeah that particular rebellion out there giving them some kind of numerical weight and not just establishing a kind of law about it but actually a numerical a mathematical Yeah, a mathematical principle.
1: Yeah, something impersonal, inflexible, that is not something you interpret, but something you explain, right? That that it has a rationale that is impersonal and that human behavior is determined by it. Right. And then once, once you have done that, by studying the past,
0: you have decided how to numerically evaluate, how to assign numbers to particular things things, particular causes, particular, I don't know, it's even hard to actually actually qualify this to, to actually use words to describe this. But once you have assigned numbers to these these factors that you have identified in the past as contributing to the outcome of something, then you can take all of that data, that quantification, the numbers there and the equations that you've developed and apply them to predicting the future. Correct. According is, to Harry Seldon. Right. Because let's be clear, that's that's nonsense. Right? Correct. That is nonsense. Yeah. Yes, but it is, as you say, much closer to. Do not do to- your
1: dissertation on this.
0: <laughs> no, do not. I mean, unless you want to write about Asimov from an intellectual history perspective, then you can totally do yeah. that. I meant uh, don't don't
1: try to predict the future using math not. for your dissertation.
0: Yeah. yeah, and actually, don't ask historians to predict the future. Although that's all we that's all we're for, according to uh, to TV news anyway. But so, as you say, Jay, this is much closer to something like sociology than it is to. History. So, what is it actually that historians do? What
1: are what are historians actually trying to understand about the past? If it is not these laws, yeah, I mean, just the word "understand" is actually a good word. um, That on some level, this is what historians try to do. We try to understand the past. We try to make sense of it. You know, I'm I'm from a school of historians that, by training, is very much sort of. Embedded in what's called the cultural turn in history, we take what we would think of as an extremely hermeneutic approach to history, where we sit with texts and we try to work from the text to its meaning or something like that. So whereas somebody like Selden is interested in laws or processes or causality I, I'm much more, as a historian, interested in sort of interpretive work, close readings of texts that give us a better understanding of their kind of cultural and social significance and from there building arguments about the nature of a past society um, and how best to understand it. I, I think that at this moment, um, history as a field is maybe in a little bit of an uncertain place in terms of thinking about exactly what it. Does Um, and has really been true for quite a while. So, a a traditional way to define what history is is that um, it's not literature, right? When history was first professionalized as a discipline. One of the ways in which it was professionalized was by saying historical writing is not literary writing. It has truth value. It has research conventions um, that set it apart from literary writing. And believe it or not, this was revolutionary at the time when in before the professionalization of history as an academic discipline, um, historians were like gentlemen scholars who took great liberties with the truth, who wrote engaging literary stories about the past and so forth. Right. Edward Gibbon. Exactly. Ex- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a, he's a prime to, example. To name one. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, I, you know, I don't like the question, what is history as a discipline? Um, I like the question, what does history do? What do historians do? What is historical work like? What kind of habits of mind do historians have? And you can name a lot of good ones. Um, Skepticism, uh, empathy, um, a concern for kind of the nitty gritty specifics of the past. That's something that's very much associated, I think, with historical work today as opposed to the kind of big sociological histories of the 1950s under sort of social structure social scientific approaches to history that historians have taken very often the kind of anthropologist dictum, all knowledge is local knowledge pretty seriously. And we want to be as specific as possible in our studies. Um, Whereas In Asimov's time, I'm not sure this was necessarily the case. He was writing at a time where social scientific approaches to history with big comparisons, uh, concerned with large processes, with deep structures, um, was really considered to be one of the ways to do history. And I think this very much influenced sort of his approach and th- this has been one of the perennial
0: questions about history as as a discipline or you know maybe just history as a as a department in a university right is is it does it belong to is does it belong to the social sciences like sociology psychology economics political science or does it belong to the humanities like english and uh, other other language studies literature studies or philosophy or religious studies philosophy, something like that art history Religious Art history, studies, right? Yeah. And you invoked earlier the the cultural turn, which I, I guess I would say the 70s. Do you feel right saying sure. the 1970s for that? <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so you and I have have grown up uh, and then done all of our academic training as well in a world dominated by that. But that's a world that postdates this book by 20 years, postdates Asimov's education by 35 years. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think most of our colleagues today would think of themselves as working. In a humanities discipline, rather than yeah. a social sciences discipline, but uh, you're but but as you say, that was not true when Asimov was writing Foundation, and was maybe really not true for like a whole century.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's probably true. I mean, definitely in Asimov's time, history was being touted as something with scientific credentials, for sure. And, and there's lots of reasons for this. The Cold War factored into it, the idea that the West had access to a scientific approach, a scientific, unbiased approach to history was part of this um, emerging sort of Intellectual traditions um, from France and from the Annales School of sort of social structural history or the new social history all played a role in this. But definitely at the time that Asimov was writing, history as a discipline was leaning more into its scientific roots, more into sort of the interest in how structures dictated human history, how deep structural principles dictated human history, and, um, What kind of uh, mega forces were kind of shaping the the progress of human culture and things like this? It was definitely a moment where kind of the science side of things, where the social scientific side of things um, was at the forefront of how people were thinking about history and
0: maybe we should even define what we mean by social sciences a little bit and i'll also then give like a practical example for our our listeners but you know, i think putting the sciences in social sciences is really to say that you're taking many of the same operating principles of the the physical or the natural sciences and applying them to human societies and so you're doing something like making an observation in the world, uh, you know, seeing an effect, seeing something that has happened in the world, and then trying to understand why and how it happened, and f- then also and and then develop uh, the rules or laws or principles for that, and duplicate that experiment, right? To to find something that can be predicative, something that can allow you to predict the the future. But that is not, you know, that is not what social scientists do, but that is kind of at the heart of the invention of social sciences in you know around this around this time. And We can just, and just to give an example of how that works, we can go back to thinking about the fall of the Roman Empire. A social scientist's approach to that is trying to identify what are the most important causes of that, rank them, assign some kind of value to them. And use that as a way for uh, for people now, policymakers in government, I mean, they're usually the audience for these sorts of things, yeah. to think about what they should do, what lessons they can take from history, right? That's a sort of social sciences approach. And so that's the way that we've gone through even talking about the fall of the Roman Empire. This, was it internal factors? Was it external factors? Was it Christians or barbarians that did it? Or was it plague or climate change and so on? And my own work on the fall of the Roman Empire has been really to step aside from those types of ideas at all, that type of debate at all, though I'm very interested in that debate, and actually just to ask, but what was it like to live through it? And so my work has not been looking at causes or factors, but has been looking at the sermons and the, the letters and the, the personal accounts of people who lived through these events, seeing what they thought about them, how the events that they were living through shaped and constrained their lives, and just generally what that experience was like. And I'm doing that to humanize the experience. I'm not doing that so that I can prevent the same thing from happening to America.
1: I think an easy way, thinking about your own work, a really easy way that I sometimes explain to my students to distinguish um, history as social science from history as humanity uh, as a humanistic discipline is that a social scientific approach to history is really interested in deterministic processes that shape humankind. And a humanities approach, the human the human field, right? Humanistic disciplines are really interested in how humans, as kind of agents, as things having agency, are able to kind of shape history. You know, at its most basic, it boils down to do humans get kind of made by these impersonal processes? Are our actions dictated by them? Or do we kind of make these processes? um are are we kind of the agents of history in some ways
0: That is a much better much clearer explanation than mine was. I do want to make one thing clear before we go into our our final segment here which will take us about 2 minutes to get through uh which is just that we are not disparaging social sciences at not all. At all. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Sociologists, economists, uh, political scientists and so on do amazing
1: amazing work. And I just want to point out my my favorite social theorist is someone whose entire work has been done, has been trying to reconcile sort of sociology and social science with history as disciplines to try to think about how you can have models that allow you to have both agency and determinism at the same time. So absolutely.
0: Uh, Who who is that? And and what's something Uh, that listeners uh, could go
1: read? uh, William Sewell, um, who's at the history department at the University of Chicago, his book that lays out most of this is called The Logics of History. But he does amazing work on sort of thinking about, okay, what do we actually mean when we use a word like culture? And says, well, here's six definitions of culture. What do we mean when we use a word like structure? Can we arrive at a good definition of something like that that allows us to understand both how – Um, humans kind of act because of deep structures, but when we act on them, we actually kind of remake them in some way. Um, so I I find him an extremely useful way for grappling about questions having to do with the distinction between the humanities and the social sciences.
0: And I expect we'll be talking about him again as we we explore deeper into yeah. what psychohistory is, as we actually start to see it in operation in the the later parts of this book. But uh, so we'll table our discussion of psychohistory for now and uh, move into our last segment here, which is uh, really just to to think about uh, what I like to call the history of the future, where we uh, look at the ways that people in generations past envisioned what the future is going to be like, uh, usually in ways that now strike us as quaint or silly or, uh, or hokey, uh, but also maybe just something that could interest us in terms of the mid 20th century. So Jay, what was something that really stood out to you? I mean, besides this rosy picture of academia,
1: you know, it's silly. I, I almost picked something from the second part of the book without even really thinking about it, but I'm going to go with it anyway, because it'll set up sort of some of the discussions um, f- for our future podcasts a little bit. I just thought it was so, I don't know, quaint. That in this book, and it makes sense in the time Asimov was writing, but that the key bit of knowledge that made this galactic empire possible and which was the first thing to be lost was, of all things, nuclear power. We've advanced to a point where we have a million planet galactic empire with space travel across the entire galaxy, but we've gotten no further than nuclear power. In Asimov's foundation. And in fact, it's the first thing to be lost. Somehow nuclear power, (laughs) knowledge of it, all these millennia in the future is still fragile enough that it might be lost completely to planets within 100 years. Right. And of
0: course, what makes this kind of quaint, right, is that Asimov is writing this at the beginning of the yeah. nuclear age and also seeing nuclear power as the future, right? As, you know, the, the source of power that we're all going to be using in the future that's going to lead to this bright, amazing future. And of yeah. course, is not certainly not what the United States has done and not what most of the the world has done. I mean, Japan and uh, Germany, a few other places have have leaned
1: uh, heavily on nuclear power, but most places have not. And this, I mean, this is, it's not just that, you know, he was sort of like, "Uh haha, he didn't realize that nuclear power wasn't going to catch on. It actually makes sense. And we can talk about this, that nuclear power at his moment would serve as a metaphor for sort of advanced scientific knowledge and advanced civilization and stuff like this. But you can't help but chuckle at the idea that somehow this super advanced civilization of a galactic empire within sort of like a hundred years of crisis is going to revert back to Coal,
0: <laughs> right? And I think also just the idea that knowledge that presumably uh, it has been the glue of this of this empire for twelve thousand years can be lost in one hundred years. Yeah, it strikes exactly. us as as pretty strange. Like the idea—it's the knowledge of it that is lost, not the material resources. It's not—we've used up everything, you know, all the uranium or all the plutonium yeah. and so on. It's just that we've forgotten how to do it in. Two lifetimes? lifetimes—the sp- Like, my grandpa remembered yeah. how to do it, but I don't know how to do it now and can't find any writing that would tell me how to do it.
1: Which in chronological terms would be, you know, okay, so our human civilization has existed for whatever term we're using for it now, 8,000 years. It would be like us, um, like, forgetting how to make a fire. Within a 50 years or something like.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's a pretty quaint idea. I, I have one that I, I think to me is the, the, the most glaring, but I'm actually going to save that for uh, a later episode when it will be more relevant. But, you know, I have this this real impulse to to look at. Uh, the society and who Asimov thinks gets to participate in it and so on. But I'll save that for later. And I'll, I, like you, Jay, will go something more technological here. And it's this is something that's going to happen with anything written before the well, the 80s for sure, maybe even actually before 2000 in a lot of cases. And that's just, you know, there's no internet. There's no digital <laughs> anything oh my God. here. Yeah. And it's just like the whole premise of this is dependent on there not being any digital anything or that if there is, I mean, maybe there isn't, we just don't see it, but then this too is something that Asimov is saying is going to disappear as soon as this political institution or, or you know, the political, or as soon as this state is, is, uh, fragmented, you know, the internet is going to break down.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's funny. There are offhand references in here to like, um, like things ringing as if there's like still analog <laughs> notification systems and right. stuff like that right nobody's got a smartphone nobody's got a tablet computer or anything like that even computers themselves are curiously evanescent um, as a whole in, in yeah. the in the book and in the narrative device and stuff like that except when harry Seldon makes his miraculous appearances as a hologram um but you're you're right like the at the total absence of the digital is really striking in this
0: yeah, it really is. And of course, this is something that stands out, you know, all throughout really the first half of the Cold War. I'm thinking about, you know, Star Trek here, the original series of Star yeah. Trek, where like the, there's a there is a computer on the ship, but it's Spock's special purview. It's like his magic. Yeah, that's that, that right. Only Spock has access to and knows how to use and only because he's literally the smartest person
1: in the whole Federation. Right? Yeah. So yeah. he's figured uh, <laughs> out computers. Nobody else. No other rubes have yet.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, we'll have we'll uh, we'll take a look at the history of the future in uh, each of these episodes as we continue and point out some uh, some other things that can that can make us laugh or just, you know, see the way that people who actually are supposed to be predicting the future, which is to say science fiction writers, uh, are not, not not doing Harry Seldon proud. That's right. But uh, I think that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDormand. Jay, let me say thank you to you for joining me on this episode and really for the, the entire, uh, I don't know, secret project here of our own. It's been great. And I'm looking forward to doing the next installments here. So uh, we do hope that you will come talk with us about part one of Foundation at our forum on claytemplemedia.com, or you can stop by our subreddit, which is just ClayTempleMedia. Temple Media. Uh, You can also follow the network on Twitter. We're at Clay Temple Media. And we're going to be back in just a day or two with part two, The Encyclopedist's And until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.